This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 511 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 511tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 511tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 511 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 424 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Tony Long. Now, Tony spent a full career in the Metropolitan Police in the UK, most of which on the Elite Specialist Firearms Units. So we discuss a host of topics from the evolution of weapons carried by the British police force, the history of firearm restrictions in the UK amongst the civilian population, the three officer-involved shootings that he was involved with, the legal and psychological impact of those shootings, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, and subscribe to the show. Leave feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this podcast, Behind the Shield, is a free library for you, the audience, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Tony Long. Enjoy. So, Tony, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. My pleasure. So, very first question, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? Right, I'm, do you want to be too precise? I'm actually sitting in my living room, uh, in my house, in a part of southeast London that um, is also called Kent. So, it's, it's, it's within the greater London area, but it's also part of the county of Kent which is southeast of London. Beautiful. I think I'm, I'm familiar with that area. My, my family are from, my dad's side are from Ashford, Kent, so a little bit further oh, okay. southeast. So not a bit, yeah, not too far there. Not at all. All right. Well, then I love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Right. Zero siblings. Um, I was an only child. Um, I was born on something that's probably not, well known to any American listeners, and that is a, a holiday camp. Holiday camps were a very British um, sort of working man's holiday location in the UK. 
before overseas travel was particularly popular in the uh, in the in the 50s and 60s um and um so i was born on a holiday camp on the most easterly tip of um the united kingdom in a place called lowestoft and then as a baby um i moved down with my parents um and a gentleman by the name of leslie dean and his family to set up a new holiday camp in sussex on the south coast um of uh, of the uk uh, and that's where my childhood was. So uh, no siblings. I was packed off to an all-boys boarding school at the age of seven, which was quite commonplace in those days. Um, and I was privately educated. Uh, in other words, we paid for the education, or my parents paid for the education, from the age of seven through to the age of 17. Um, all boarding. So I was always you know, away for, for my parents for during the school term. Um a, a great upbringing really you know um i never regretted not having um sort of siblings and certainly in the summer holidays you know every other week there was like 500 new campers arrived for the summer season um and so i'd get to sort of make new friends every week so yeah pretty pretty normal um happy childhood really Beautiful. Now, I heard you mention in, I think it was Chris Ryan's interview, that you recently found out that your biological, who you thought was your biological dad wasn't. So how did that unfold? Uh, so basically what happened is um, I got married at the age of 18. Um, I had children very early. And then after we'd been married for 18 years, I got divorced. Um, went a bit penis berserk for a couple of years, uh, quite a few different girlfriends. And eventually I moved in with a girl who lived, who I'd met, and she lived in, in the street where I bought a small apartment. And um, I brought a load of my stuff up over to, to store in her house. And I brought a load of um, uh, old picture albums. And there was uh, one album that was devoted to my christening. And my girlfriend took one look at a picture of, of me as a, as a baby being held by my godmother um, and she said oh is that your mum and I went no that's not my mum and she said oh is it you know an aunt or whatever so that's my godmother um, she was the daughter of my parents boss Leslie Dean and she said well you need to have another look at that picture because <laughs> that's that's your daughter and when I looked carefully at this picture of my godmother who would have been in her 20s in 1957 um, my daughter um, was in her twenties at that at that moment, and when I took a second look, I went, you know, wow, the the family likeness was just undeniable, and so uh, I approached my um, what turned out to be my half sister, and she said, yeah, I've, I've always known that you're my brother, um, and everyone else in the family did as well. <laughs> so uh, I, I don't know whether my father ever knew. He, my mum died when I was in my twenties, and so I never had a chance to ask her. And when I did find all this out, my father was in his sort of in his seventies, and I didn't I didn't feel it right to approach the subject with him. You know, to be honest, he'd been my dad in you know to all intents and purposes for nearly fifty years by that point. So you know, I just let sleeping dogs lie. But yeah, I don't think I, I don't think it's unique. I don't think it's unique. I think most families of you know, if you speak to enough people, will tell you, oh yeah, I remember that you know your uncle so-and-so or you know aunt so-and-so isn't really your aunt or whatever you know what i mean it's uh it's quite commonplace and it certainly was i think in the in the 50s and 60s 
Yeah, it's no, it's so interesting though that you found out so late. That's kind of what struck me that you know, and as you said, your dad was your dad. The other, the other person, you know, yeah. was was biology, but yeah, I mean, it doesn't change anything my big, at my all. My biggest regret, my biggest regret is that I found out quite late because um, I, when I when I confronted my half sister about this, she was in her in her seventies by this point, and she was she's a massive character, and uh, we just hit it off. You know, she 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 never apologized or. She had nothing to apologise for, but um, you know, she just accepted straight off the bat that we were now brother and sister. Um, I had a half brother as well, but um, she spoke to him about it, and he he didn't want to know me. Uh, but I got on really, really well with my my half sister Valerie, and, and and very sadly, she was very fit for her age. She played golf, uh, you know, on a sort of weekly basis, and and then just suddenly she had a, a minor operation um that kind of went wrong and um she had an embolism in her brain and uh, died within a within a matter of months so i didn't actually get to know her um as well as i perhaps would have liked to have done but yeah, one of those things yeah it's very sad but i mean it's still a beautiful chapter in your life though that you found that out and you got to spend some time with her yeah absolutely yeah Right. Well, then back to your early life. Um, obviously, Butlins and Pontins, you know, you're known for a lot of you know, activities that they, they put on for the campers. With you specifically, were you into fitness or sports as a school age kid? I, I was all, well, say fitness. I think fitness is a relatively new thing, isn't it? I don't think, you know, when, even, even when I joined the police at 18, I'd been in the police for about 10 years before people, you know, ordinary people started going to gyms in the UK certainly you know um, so because there were no sort of public gyms as such you know people you know even even in the 1970s you know running as a hobby was something that you joined a club to do you know it wasn't something that people just went out jogging it, that was a that was something that kind of emerged in the 70s so yes I was into sports um, you know I loved I loved football I loved cricket um, I wasn't built for rugby. I enjoyed it, but I wasn't really built for it. I was I was uh, pretty skinny. Um, hated swimming. Didn't learn to swim until I was about thirteen. Um, bizarrely, considering, like I said, I was brought up in a holiday camp that had a swimming pool in it. But um, yeah, as far as sort of keeping fit was concerned, I was just a typical kid of that era. You know, we didn't eat junk food. You know, meat and two veg fresh air, you know, there were no computer games. So just a typical child of the 60s and 70s, really. Beautiful. And what about um, career aspirations when you were school age? What were you hoping to be? Uh, well, like everybody, I wanted to be a, a footballer or, or whatever. Um, that wasn't going to happen. I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, brilliant at any sports, but by the same token, I wasn't bad at any of them either. Do you know what I mean? So I got on the school team for instance, but I was never going to make a profession out of that, however much I wanted to. Um, I always fancied something around adventure. Um, I love books on adventure. I love like, war comics. Um, uh, as I got a bit older, I used to sneak away from uh, boarding school of an afternoon with my mates and go and watch films in the local town, at the cinema, uh, and they would normally be war films or cop films. So in the latter part, sort of films like Serpico and The French Connection and, and sort of classics like that sort of led me to want to be a detective. 
but by the same token, part of me still wanted sort of to, you know, perhaps go in the military. Um, but uh, it, it was always something to do with like chasing bad guys or getting in shootouts, you know, getting in car chases. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Uh, and so that's, you know, I, I didn't try very hard at school, um, particularly anything. I was pretty typical, really. If, if I found something remotely difficult, then I didn't really apply myself. Um, so there were things that I excelled at. And there was stuff that, like I said, I found it remotely difficult. I didn't really apply myself. So when I left school, I didn't really have any qualifications other than to go into a line of work that didn't really require them. So. Brilliant. Well, so an interesting side, side part of your story that parallels mine. It's funny because everything you said parallels mine so far. As far as growing up, I was a very, I love sports, but I was very small, very, you know, I, I could play all the sports. I was never going to excel. But another thing that really stuck the spanner in the works for me is I wanted to be a fireman since I was a kid and I had a physical at school and they told me I was colorblind and I couldn't be a firefighter, I couldn't be right. a pilot, couldn't be any of this stuff. So I yeah. know that kind of factors into your journey as well. So lead me into your journey into the police force and how that was almost derailed by your color vision. <laughs> yeah, so growing up, I mean, I, I had no idea that I had a, a deficiency um, with, with my eyesight in relation to color. Um, it was only when I went uh, for my interview to be a, a, a recruit, a police recruit, that I was given my very first eyesight test um, with one of those colorblind books, you know, where you have all the different colored dots and you're supposed to be able to see a number uh, in amongst the dots. Um, and while I, I struggled with nearly all of them, there were some that I just couldn't, I couldn't make head and the tail out of it. And the woman that was doing the test just wrote in big letters on a clipboard in front of her CB. So I said to her, you know, is that going to, is that going to affect me getting into the police? And she sort of just sort of brushed me off with a, well, you have to speak to the doctors about it. That's it. So um, <laughs> if you read the book, it, most people that have read this particular bit found it quite funny. And I suppose it was in a sort of Monty Python sort of way. Uh, but we were, we were doing a sort of a, a round robin of, of different things. So you'd have your eyesight test and then you'd have your colorblindness test and then you'd go be weighed and uh, all of that sort of stuff. And so um, the colorblind test for me was one of the first things. And then we, um, we got given um, dressing gowns and got told to strip off and put these dressing gowns on. And then we got briefed by a sergeant that uh, when our name was called, we were to go through the red door. Um, we were to go into the middle of the room where we would see there were footprints painted on the floor. We were to stand on those footprints, drop our um, dressing gown, bend over and spread our ass cheeks. <laughs> Is this a promotional and, test? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I remember him saying, are there any questions? And I'm pretty sure that we all had a question, but no one dared ask it. <laughs> and um, so... <laughs> So I, my name got called and I duly went in there and there was a desk and I, it was either four or three guys in white coats um, sitting behind a desk, um, a long desk. And on the leading edge of this desk was a row of different coloured toy cars. Um, I don't know what they're called in America, but we used to call them corgi, corgi cars or dinky cars. Um, just little metal, you know, uh, cars that kids played with. So anyway, I, I, I duly put my feet on the footprints. I dropped my, uh, I dropped my dressing gown. I bent over. I spread my ass cheeks. And uh, <laughs> one of the doctors said, oh, Mr. Long, we, we don't want to see that yet. Uh, can, can you come over to the desk, please? 
So I'm sort of <laughs> I'm sort of leaning over, sort of spreading my arse cheeks apart, and I'm like, pardon? And they're like, we don't want to see that yet. So I sort of cupped my rapidly shrinking testicles and penis <laughs> into my hand and, and walked over to the desk, um, really not having a clue what was happening. And they just pointed at the cars and said, can you tell us what colour these cars are? So I went along the line. I said, yeah, that's red, that's blue, that's green. That's a sort of a pinky, browny sort of salmon colour. You know, that's a, that's a dark green, maybe brown. Um, that's yellow and that's orange. And they went, they looked at each other and nodded and they went, yeah, that's fine. Off you go. And that was it. I, I never did. No one actually officially told me I'd passed it. I, I assumed that by doing that, I'd passed it. So like a lot of colorblind people, I discovered at that point in my life that I had a difficulty with very dark greens and like very dark reds, but if but only when they were together. Yeah. Yeah. Same as me. Sounds a bit stupid, but yeah. So if, if so, I, the first time I got, it only really affected me a couple of times in my police career, and one of them, we chased a suspect who'd um, broken into someone's house, and in the process of escaping, he cut himself on a window, and he cut himself quite badly. I think it was it was maybe been arterial. I don't know, but. So he was leaving a blood trail and we were following the blood trail. And when the blood trail was on concrete or stone or similar surfaces, I, I had no problem whatsoever. Uh, but when he ran onto grass, my colleagues were like looking sort of 20 yards ahead and go, he went that way. And I'm like, well, what can they see that I can't? And so when I eventually did see um, or so some blood was pointed out to me in the grass, um, I literally sort of bent down and put my finger in it and it sort of came out bright red. But, it just looked black, really. The red, the, albeit that it was bright red on my finger, when it was up against the green of the grass, it looked it looked black. Quite for, for people that aren't colourblind, I suppose that must sound quite strange. But normally, it doesn't affect me at all. You know, I obviously know the difference between a red traffic light and a green traffic light. You know, so it, it's it's never presented a real problem. There have been issues actually quite recently in the UK because all of our police officers aren't armed. Those that are and those that carry tasers, um, recently there's been a move to ban anyone that's colourblind from being a firearms officer or a taser officer. And um, it's, it's clearly these, these things are led by people that don't suffer from colourblindness. I know colourblindness isn't the correct term anymore, but we, that's what we're calling it, so we might as well stick with colourblindness. So clearly, like I said, for someone that doesn't understand it, they'll just see it as a problem. They go, oh, you know, what if you what if you have to shoot someone with a red jacket and, and you shoot the person with a green jacket instead, you know? And you go, well, I've never shot anybody because I didn't like the colour of their clothing, you know? I shot them because they were holding a gun and they posed a threat or they were, you know, holding a knife and they were stabbing someone. You know, the colour of their clothing is immaterial. Um, but, uh, you know, that has raised its head quite recently. Like within the last year, um, and funnily enough, I just read today somewhere that um, they're hoping that that is now resolved and it's been put to bed um, and it, it will no longer be a problem. But uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah, no, it is. And it makes me realize now that I failed my test because I have my clothes on. So I'm going to use my brown eye next time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you spread those arse cheeks. <laughs> No, it is it is crazy though because you know as we've seen now, I mean there are amputees that are fully functioning firefighters and you know police officers and yeah. you know when I was Absolutely. little, um, you know, I was I was kind of like you. I was when I had my growth spur at eighteen, I think I was six foot and ten stone. I mean I'm like a like a toothpick. Um, I'm not much bigger now to be well, honest. You beat but- me because I. I- 
I was I was nine and a half stone. I don't know who listens to your podcast, but if there are a lot of them American, they won't understand stones, will they? What's that in pounds? No, so we about I was six foot nine and a half pounds. Yeah, like one fifty stone, sorry. One fifty ish and now I'm yeah. one seventy. But yeah, I mean yeah. it was you know, small. Uh, very as a small. young as a young cop, I had to like I had to put rocks in my pocket when I went out on night duty if it was windy. I'd have just been <laughs> picked up and blown away <laughs> Well, so before we get into your journey into the into law enforcement, because obviously firearms are a big part of not only your you know career journey, but obviously some of the the incidents that involved um, you know the, that you told in the book. Ultimately, yeah. What I found fascinating listening to, I think it was a Harden Up podcast. You gave a great account of the history of the British uh, police service and why we don't carry weapons. And I can. It's funny how that original kind of uh, philosophy has created barriers all the way up to 2021. So, if if you wouldn't mind, can you kind of lead us through the history no, so people understand? No, not at all. And, and and there are definitely parallels with um, United you know, the, the, the the legislation um, and um, the. The, the, the history of the United States, because obviously, you know, the early history of the United States is, you know, it's part of part of English history or part of British history. Um, and up until 1829, 1839, I, I never remember, I think it was 1829, um, there was no formal police force in the United Kingdom. And, and there weren't formal police forces pretty much anywhere else in the world. There's lots of arguments about where the first real police for, force was. Some say it's Paris. Uh, in the United Kingdom, some people say it was actually in Glasgow in Scotland. But I think it was 1829 that the Metropolitan Police Act came out. And the Metropolitan Police Force was created. There have been a couple of attempts prior to that. So um, because London was one of the biggest ports in the world and you could allegedly pretty much walk across the Thames with the amount of ships that were, were moored um, down by Tower Bridge in London, there was a huge amount of theft um, you know, people in rowing boats coming up and, you know, kegs of whatever being passed down and stolen. And so a river police, <coughs> excuse me, was created uh, probably with the support of insurance companies, I should imagine, to try and and uh, reduce crime on the River Thames. Um, and uh, they, they preceded uh, the Metropolitan Police by some 20 years, I think. And they were armed. They were armed with cutlasses um, and... Uh, you know, percussion cap pistols, um, and uh, you know, because it was a it was a dangerous. They were dangerous times, um, but as far as the rest of the country was concerned, you had um, you know local people who were sworn in, rather like a you know a sheriff in a small town, or sorry, a, you know, deputy sheriffs or whatever in small towns in in the west would have been sworn in. Um, so you can imagine a situation where the biggest guy in the village was the, you know, the blacksmith and, uh, he'd be made a constable and probably couldn't get paid for it. He probably got free beer in the local pub, but his job was to kick out the drunks and, uh, you know, check out people who were hanging around who were suspicious and that sort of thing. Um, but there was no formal police force. Now that was all right for the most part, but if there was a major public order issue such as there was going to be a huge civil protest about for instance i don't know poverty um then the only people that could police it would be the military 
Um, and there were several situations, the most famous of which was in Peterloo. It was called the Peterloo Massacre, um, where uh, the local um, reserve army unit, for want of a better description, on horseback charged the crowd, sabres drawn, and you know multiple you know, civilians were killed. And that made anybody in a uniform carrying a gun or a sabre or whatever else um, who was working on behalf of the government they were seen as the bad guys. Um, and so in much the same way that, you know, you, you have the Second Amendment in the United States to allow citizens to own guns, um, not just for self-protection, but also to, uh, you know, take up arms against a tyrannical government. Um, you know, that, that was very much a, a British concept that was taken out by the first settlers to the United States. You know, they wanted to be armed so they could protect themselves, but also... So that um, you know they, they didn't have to suffer tyranny, uh, but Britain didn't have a constitution, and um, you know in the same time that the United States was getting independence, um, there was and still is to an extent, I suppose, you know a, a huge, clearly divided class structure where you had the extremely wealthy and the extremely poor, um, and you know the poor were suppressed. Um, so when the police force was created. Um, by the then Home Secretary, Sir Robert Peel, in 1829. Um, police officers, the Metropolitan Police, was hugely, hugely unpopular. In fact, the first police officer to be murdered, even though he was brutally assaulted by two individuals, um, those two individuals were acquitted by the jury uh, unanimously uh, because the, the whole concept of a police force was so alien. Um, you know, that you'd had uniformed people there suppressing your freedom. And so they were deliberately um, given a uniform that consisted of a top hat and tails so that they would look like a gentleman. Um, and they were deliberately given just a wooden truncheon and a rattle uh, so that they could, uh, you know, call for help um, and a lamp, a lamp. And that was it. That was their, that was their issue equipment. Um, and I think when it was formed, I think they bought some, I think the records state that they bought something like 50 flintlock pistols for the worst case scenario. And they were to be kept centrally, you know, and only, and only issued out with the most senior authority on pain of death, you know. Um, and so even when I joined in 1975, the whole ethos of British policing was that we weren't armed. And even though you know, we got rid of the flintlocks and got Webley revolvers by the time I joined, or Smith and Wesson revolvers by the time I joined. If they were ever issued, we weren't allowed to call them guns on the radio. You know, if you were getting shot at, getting <laughs> pinned down by some criminal who's firing a pump action shotgun at you, you were supposed to get on the radio and say, "Can we get some equipment down here?" <laughs> you couldn't say, "You know, we need, we need guns. Get some guns down here," because then you'd be hauled over the coals for actually putting it up over the radio that we had guns. And if you were, and those officers, the few officers that were trained in the use of firearms, um, when they were issued with one, um, it had to be concealed. You know, right up until the 1990s, well into the 1990s, police officers standing outside 10 Downing Street, for instance, were required to either wear a tunic to cover their holster or literally stick their revolver or their pistol or whatever in their trouser pocket if the weather was really hot. So it, it seems archaic, 
um, and it doesn't it defies all logic you know when i look at when i look at it you, you know i'm i'm firmly um in the court that believes that all our police officers should be armed um, I think it's a health and safety thing. You know, you wouldn't send a fireman into a building and say, yeah, well, we're not going to give you fire retardant clothing. So why would you send policemen in to deal with an armed incident, you know, or respond to an armed incident without having the, the ability to protect themselves and the public? Um, but it, it, it's, if, you were to, if you were to ask the British public, actually, there's probably more of the general public that now would be in favour of arming the police uh, than at any other time in our history. Uh, but actually, it's mainly politicians and actually senior police officers that are probably the most vehement opponents to arming all of the police. Yeah, well, I think that's why these these conversations are important, because when people that were on, on the, the streets, you know, have conversations, fire, police, EMS, whoever it is, those are the voices we really need to hear because, you know, the, the decision makers get to have their meetings in their offices. You know, I don't know how... I'm not picking on any particular individual, but what I've seen in my career is a lot of times, you know, often people that rise quickly through the ranks spend very little time doing the job, if any at all. So now they're making decisions that are completely disconnected from the men and women that are actually putting their lives in danger. Well, interestingly enough, when um, when they had the uh, attack in Nice a few years ago in the south of France, uh, my partner and I were actually on holiday at the time in Nice. And um, I got a, a phone call from one of the um, uh, main TV companies uh, in the UK saying, you know, would you be in a position to um, talk about this incident? And um, so I duly uh, found a, or was directed to a, a small television studio in Nice um, and sat and was, was interviewed. Um, but there was about a five second delay between them asking me a question and me answering it. Um, and they also had a, another expert witness in the, in the studio in London who was a retired female detective chief superintendent, which is like uh, quite a senior rank. And she was vehemently opposed to the police being armed. And unfortunately, whenever I tried to open my mouth to argue the case, um, she would get in before me because of the delay. Um, and eventually about... Uh, six months later, I got a return match <laughs> where the two of us were called again as expert witnesses to something that else that had happened in the United Kingdom that that raised the issue of arming the police. And she, again, she was you know vehemently opposed to it. And I said, well, with the greatest respect, ma'am, I said, you were a, a chief a detective, chief superintendent. By the time you arrived, you know, a serious murder scene, the only protective equipment that you needed was a white paper suit and rubber gloves. You know, because because you were part of the forensic operation, <laughs> you, know. uh, you didn't have to arrive when the you know the man was still murdering people armed with a you know samurai sword or a gun. You know. um, and so, it, I actually seriously think that um, no one will admit to this, and I don't suppose anyone would actually even in in private admit to it. But I seriously think that even if it's subliminally. There are senior police officers and politicians in the United Kingdom that would rather have a police officer die than um, an armed suspect. Um, because when an unarmed police officer dies, we get a wave of public support. Um, if we shoot somebody, then we're the bad guys. 
you know, and actually the police service and the government and everyone else will get the backlash of, you know, why the police, you know, killed this person. Um, and so, you know, purely from a, a, a public relations exercise, um, this is me being particularly cynical, it's better to have a, a dead police officer uh, than a dead suspect. Yeah, well, it's it's about proactivity, and you know, we st- we talked about this briefly before we started recording. But it's learning lessons from the past, you know, and, and reevaluating. And and it's funny because one of the one of the symbolisms to me of a lack of progress in the American fire service is our helmets. I've worn the the giant ones. I've worn the the West Coast, um, which is a smaller version of it, but they are literally over a hundred years old. And you know, I equate it to the English Bobby helmet, you know? I mean, functionally, mm-hmm. it has to be completely fucking useless. But, you know, they, we've, they've hung on to that as tradition. It's what they call with our helmets, too, to the point where they'll well, even and I, ridicule. And I, have a, I, I actually have a huge a huge time for, you know, I'm big into my history, um, and uh, as you may have detected. Uh, and, um, you know, I love history, and I think there's definitely a place for traditional uniform. It just isn't doing the day-to-day job, you know, keep it for funerals and state visits, you know, put the Bobby in, you know, go the whole hog, give him a, you know, a, a high collar number one tunic, you know, with, uh, with braid on it and uh, an embroidered badge on it and, you know, let him display all his medals and wear white gloves and, a, and, a, and his old Victorian Bobby's helmet, fine. But, you know, when you're chasing a suspect over, you know, over back gardens and rooftops, um, a Bobby's helmet is about as much use as tits on a fish, if I'm honest. It's, it, it's got like a self-eject mechanism and it just bounces off your head up the moment you start running. Um, and then you've got to carry it. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. And when I look around the rest of the world, it's like I remember in, growing up in the 60s when German police officers, when you saw, see them on the television you know, or in films, would be wearing not something that wasn't dissimilar to a Br- British Bobby's helmet, but except with a flat top you know and the, and the french had their capies you know the little sort of flat cap with a sort of pillbox hat with a little peak on it um interestingly enough if you look at the history of um nypd their original headgear was a fire helmet oh really probably probably very uh, made of leather with a huge sort of looks like a beaver tail um sticking out the back of it if you, if you Google history of NYPD uniforms, you'll see it. And at the first, the first glance, you think, oh, it's a, it, they've got this wrong. These are New York firemen. But actually, if you look at the history of the fire department and the police, it's, it's quite similar. Um, you know, they, 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 it was a bit like, I know it's a case in, in some Ameri- small American towns where you have a, like a, uh, a public safety department, you know, where your paramedics, police and fire department are all sort of, come under, you know, in one building and come under one sort of leadership. And it, and I suspect the NYPD was probably pretty similar. It probably explains as well, historically, how they ended up with an emergency service unit that does a lot of stuff that um, fire departments do in other places around the, around the country. Yeah, that's fascinating because that's exactly it. Actually, when I had a NYPD SWAT officer the other day, and, and yeah, and he does rope rescue, he does um, extrication, yeah. whereas the rest of the country has fire. It's actually it's actually quite a clever PR thing as well. Um, someone once explained it to me that um, back in the day, um, the New York Fire Department were told that they needed to get their act together and they needed to have a rescue capability. 
um, you know, rope access so they could get down into sewers if someone fell down, all that sort of stuff, breathing apparatus, cutting gear. Um, and they, they turned it down. Um, and the police department saw that as an op- opportunity to sort of extend their, their uh, abilities. Um, emergency service unit took it on. You know, no other SWAT team in, in the United States has the capability, you know, when they're criticised for shooting a suspect to say, but yeah, I delivered a baby yesterday or I cut someone out of a serious car wreck, you know? Well, that's funny because I had, I had that exact conversation with him. I said that, that you know, that's exactly yeah. it. So you can point to, just like you said, picking up a, a window washer stranded on a building or cutting a family yeah. out of a minivan. So you have that positive news story yeah. to counter some of the negative. Yeah, sure. Beautiful. Well, the other side, and we're, we're going deep into history, but this has always baffled me. I think you might be the person that can finally kind of um, shed some light on it. So you've got the law enforcement history and why they were unarmed. What I find fascinating being a kid that was born in 74, um, and I grew up, grew up on a farm, so I actually had guns. So I had shotguns on the farm and shot rifles, um, up in Scotland, but, um, was, you know, the complete absence of firearms from the general public pretty much. However, only 30 short years prior, we're in the middle of World War II, where there were probably weapons everywhere. So how were they able to remove all the weapons post World War II from the UK? So the first, I'm probably going to get this a little bit wrong, but up until certainly the 1930s, there was virtually no firearms legislation. Um, So if you're a private citizen, you could have a gun for private ownership. In fact, and I can't remember how far this goes back, but it was, it's an an act of parliament that says basically that any Englishman can have, um, you know, firearms or bladed instruments for their protection. However, there's a little bit of a clause in it because it says uh, provided they're Protestant. <laughs> so if you were Catholic, you could. If you were Catholic, you couldn't. But um, so I think it was in the 1930s and it, or 1920s possibly that legislation came in restricting certain types of firearms. And I expect, I suspect, and I might be completely wrong here, but I suspect it's probably because after the First World War, all of a sudden, a lot of um, you know, war trophies turned up at crime scenes. Um, so, you know, certainly, you know, crimes of passion, for instance, you know, there was one of the most famous cases, I think it was the last woman to be hung, um, shot her boyfriend, you know, with a, with a, with a handgun. It was, you know, by, that, by the standards of the day, a pretty modern, efficient handgun, you know. Um, but I suspect, yeah, that criminals got access to uh, war trophies, pistols mainly, perhaps. Um, And because there was no requirement in law to keep weapons secure, uh, you know, when there were burglaries, you know, shotguns would be stolen and then cut down into sawn off shotguns for criminal use. Um, So the first bit of proper firearms legislation that came in was the 1968 Firearms Act. Um, And that was the first time, to the best of my knowledge, where they first started putting proper restrictions on who could own firearms and where they could be used. And when it got to that point, you had to have a firearms certificate issued by the local police in order to own a handgun or any, any, any firearms. Shotguns have always been treated differently to what we call Section 1 firearms. So shotgun is Section 2 of the 1968 Act, 
um, handguns were Section 1 firearms, as are rifles. Yeah. Um, so I got my first firearms certificate, and I didn't really realise the significance of it, probably you know, a matter of years after this legislation came in. So the first firearms, proper firearms, I'm not talking about BB guns or air rifles here, the first proper handgun that I bought was um, a Colt Woodsman match target 0.22 semi-automatic pistol. Um, and I remember it was delivered to me by the postman on his bicycle in the little village, I, little seaside village I lived in, in, uh, in Sussex. So that's how that's how things have changed. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't happen um, anymore. And, no, but in order to obtain that firearm certificate, I had to be 18 and I had to prove that I had somewhere to shoot it and that I was a member of a club. And I, I joined the local club in Chichester where I used to go every Tuesday night and and. You know, I'd shot for about six months before I was no longer a uh, probationary member and I could then apply for my firearm certificate. Um, now, that was only a 2-2 club. So I couldn't apply for a centerfire weapon like 38 or 9mm or something like that until I had, you know, proved that I was a member of a, a full ball centerfire club, which had a range that was proofed for firing that cartridge. So that didn't happen until I joined, joined the Met basically um but be once they've got that legislation in they've been able to add to that legislation every time something has happened and so in i'm trying to think the date it would have been about 1987 we had an incident in hungerford um in a small uh, market town in a rural area of, of um, sort of south central United Kingdom. Um, and a guy who was a member of a firearms club owned a semi-automatic AK. He owned a M1 carbine, 30 caliber M1 carbine, and he owned a Beretta 9mm pistol. Um, and he shot his mother. The police were called. A traffic officer was the first officer on scene. He was shot dead. And then this guy, Michael Ryan, went down to the town centre in this little in this little town, Hungerford, um, and killed, I think, including his mother and the police officer, a total of about 14 or 15 people. I remember that. Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, the, major the majority of the people he killed were killed with a 9mm handgun. But the image of the AK-47 was what the, the press went with. And you can imagine there was lots of people, you know, we're not a, Great Britain isn't a, a shooting country. We don't have, you know, a second amendment. Um, like I said, you know, for by this time, for you know, well over a decade, um, you've been quite restricted in what guns you could own. And to be honest, the vast majority of the public were just absolutely horrified that anybody should have or need an AK-47. Well, it was a semi-automatic variant. but So the first thing they did is they brought out firearms legislation, an amendment to the, the 1968 Act, which prohibited semi-automatic centre-fire weapons. So that meant that you could no longer have an AK or an AR. You know, I mean, I remember um, I owned an AR-180 uh, about that period of time, and I had to hand it in. Um, so you could still own bolt actions you could still open you can still own um, lever actions um, 
pump actions, um, center fire rifles, but you couldn't own semi-automatic. The only semi-automatic you could own from that point on was if in a rifle was a, as it was a 0.22 rimfire. Um, but there was no attempt to ban handguns. And then in the early 90s, um, an individual who was a paedophile um, who'd had his firearms taken off of him by police because of his, uh, because of information they'd received about his behaviour, um, but and then had to return him the firearms because the chief constable, when threatened with legal case by this individual, uh, ordered that his guns be returned to him. Walked into um, a small primary school um, in Dunblane in Scotland and opened fire on the class, killing the teacher. And I think I'm right in saying, again, it was about 15 or 16 young school children. Um, and that just sent a shockwave through the whole country. We'd never had a school shooting. Um, and, you know, these were primary school kids. And so within a matter of months, uh, they brought in a handgun ban. Um, and from that point on, you weren't allowed any pistols or revolvers. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but, but the point is, and, you know, has it, has it stopped crime? Well, what it's done is it's stopped. We have had one more um, sort of rogue shooter who legally owned firearms, who went on a rampage and killed a load of people with a shotgun and with a two-two rifle. But for some reason, the government didn't decide to legislate at that point. And I think that there'd been an acceptance that you can't legislate against lunacy by this point. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it has stopped the school shooting type, you know, law-abiding citizen, own guns, goes rogue type shooting. What it hasn't had any effect on whatsoever is the day-to-day -day criminal use of firearms which has gone, you know, is way higher now than it was in the 1990s. And that's all down to drugs and, and, and gang violence. Yeah, well, I want to get into drugs in a little bit. It's one of my uh, <laughs> horses no, I flog. Keep away from it. Yeah. Keep away from it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but no, but it's it was it's been so interesting because, like I said, I, I was a farm boy, grew up with guns. You know, obviously, they're not exposed to any sort of um, you know personal protection weapon. It was just uh, shotguns mm -hmm. for the farm. Um, never forget being in Hampstead Heath um, and uh, seeing a guy walk in right before I, I emigrated to the US, actually, with a pistol in his in his belt, you know, causing a scene in a pub. And that was the first time I'd ever even seen a pistol because, like you say, you just don't see them. Then fast forward, I moved to the U.S. for a long time. I'm, you know, basically opposed. I've been groomed to be opposed to to firearms. And very long story short, you mentioned the school shooting. I got was bringing my son back from um, an annual doctor's appointment, and I got locked in a school because they had an active code red, the first one they'd ever had. And I got to see how vulnerable these kids were, how vulnerable these teachers were, you know, how powerless you are, even if you, you know, unarmed or whatever, you're fit, you've done martial arts, when it comes to weapons, you, you're still, you know, your chances of success are, are close to zero. And so it reframed yeah. everything. And I ended up 
buying a pistol, taking classes and, you know, realizing that it wasn't paranoia, like someone's going to try and kill me. It was the same, same part of me that became a firefighter. It's like, what if I have an opportunity to protect someone and I don't have the tool I need to do it? So that was a very hard decision yeah. for me to make, but as an Englishman in America. Yeah, it's actually interesting because obviously, you know, I, I have a deep interest in firearms, even, even, you know, at the end of my 33 years in the Met, um, I was recruited to work for a company that was a major uh, firearms um, and, and firearms related equipment importer into the UK. Um, so I've been in the gun trade, you know, in various ways or law enforcement equipment uh, business since I retired. And so I go to the SHOT Show most years um, and I've got a lot of American friends, many of whom, are, you know, as you can imagine, are very, very passionate about the Second Amendment. And, and some, you know, there's, there's Every so often, you'll you'll come across somebody um, who's an anti anti Brit, you know, for whatever reason, um, um, you know. And I've had arguments with people say, "Oh, you know, you're you're oppressed because you're not allowed guns, and you know, I wouldn't go anywhere without my gun." And it's like I, I have to try and explain that gun crime is so so small in the United Kingdom that it pretty well affects no one. Unless you're a gang member, you know, and you're going to get shot by a rival gang member, um, you know, I, I don't personally, you know, I like guns, and you know, but I personally don't feel that I'm any less a man because I, in fact, probably more a man because I don't feel the need to go around carrying a gun. That said, if I lived in the United States, would I want to um, carry a gun? Yeah, absolutely. And the reason is, is because there are so many <laughs> and everyone's got one. Exactly. You know? uh, and if you're in the club, that, that's the issue. And it's like, it, it, it's totally unrealistic to expect, you know, even if, even if the Second Amendment didn't, didn't exist, there are just so many guns in the United States that if you ban everyone from owning them, as, as, as the you know, Second Amendment people say, the only people that would have guns would be criminals. Um, you know, there's just so many out there. So if I lived out there, absolutely, yes, I'd want a handgun to protect myself. But here in the UK, where there are so few firearms, um, and, and, and even in criminal hands, so few firearms, um, I, I just don't think feel the need for it. And, and, and neither do most people in most European countries either. Yeah, no, and I think that's that's just it. That was why it was a struggle. But what's interesting, I try and get people over here to understand is... You know, they'll point out the Hungerford shooting or, you know, the murder of Lee Rigby or some of these horrendous things that we have seen where, yes, you know, let's be honest, in that one moment, if someone had been well trained with a firearm, they could have probably stopped some of those those things from happening. However, what we see a lot in America is, you know, what I saw, you know, cowardly murder. Like, it's hard to explain to someone, like, any pussy can call it, pull a trigger. They really can. Crime of passion, you know, like well, you said... The classic one the other day, isn't it? That's been, you know, it's, it's hit the internet and it's sort of gone gone uh, global, and, and that's the the argument over the snow that happened in the United States within the last week. You know, where neighbours across the street from each other got in an argument about shoveling snow, and the guy just goes back into his house, comes out with a handgun, and shoots the man and woman, then goes back in his house, comes back with a shotgun, finishes them off. My God. Um, and then goes into his own house and kills himself. You know, three people dead over an argument with 
with uh, over over some snow. Well, you know, here in the UK and in most other parts of the world, you know, there'd be a bit of a handbag slapping competition, and that'd be it. Exactly. You know? Yeah, and that's that's you my thing. Be, you certainly wouldn't resort to killing people, you know. No, I mean to have to kill someone with your bare hands, which you basically have to do in the UK, whether it's you know a hatchet, a hammer, a knife, you know your fists. It's a completely different you know arena than standing X amount of feet away from someone, aiming something at them, and just squeezing your fingers. So I don't think people understand that that there is a huge deterrent in not having guns that saves an unknown you know number of people i think so to say broadly that everyone should have a gun you know like like here in the us i think is 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 a very black and white argument too and there's a middle well, area I, of common well, I, sense well, I th- yeah i think yeah exactly i think so and i think you know the argument i would always say is well yeah but if there was the volume of guns would you have would you need one do you see what i'm saying it, it, it seems to be a bit of a you know what came first, the chicken or the egg type argument, um, and uh, you know it's, it's, it's a difficult one to resolve. I mean, there are situations, absolutely. You know, one of the most common shooting situations that the police in the UK deal with um, is nor you know is around the the, the um, nightclub bouncer, or nightclub doorman getting shot, and that's where he's got in a hand to hand scrap, kicking someone out for bad behaviour, and this person happens to be a local criminal or whatever. Um, he gets he gets he comes off worse and an hour later the doorman gets shot in a drive-by shooting you know or, or he walks up to them and shoots them, you know big man you know very brave you mm-hmm. know you got beaten hands on you know an hour earlier and you've gone home so pissed off about your own inadequacies that you come back with a gun and kill someone for that you know that's that's actually quite a commonplace incident in the uk uh, but it's, invariably, it's a criminal that has hold of a, an illegal firearm. Yeah, that, that, that does it. Yeah. Well, I want to walk through, you know, your your firearm career. I'd really love just to kind of focus on on the actual shooting, so that we can get to, you know, the 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 conclusion of of your career. But before we do, I think one thing that's very pertinent after this this last year is the um, Brixton riots. Because, you know, again, here we are now, decades later, and we're going through the same exact thing. So for people listening, how was that started? And then, again, what was your observation of being a police officer? And how well prepared were you for for that when you guys were put on the front line? Well, um, so I joined the police in 1975, uh, and I got posted to Lewisham, uh, which is a semi-inner borough in southeast London which had a history of, um, uh, you know, it had a, a, a relatively high crime rate uh, and there was a, a disproportionate amount of that crime at that time, particularly street crime like robberies and you know, muggings and the like, were being committed by young black males, you know, who were like first generation born in this country from predominantly West Indian families that come over from Jamaica and, and the other Caribbean islands after the war to help Britain get back on its feet. But by the time that first generation of kids were teenagers, it was the 1970s and Great Britain was in a huge recession. I mean, there was massive unemployment all over the country. Um, and, you know, it was, there was huge problems industrially, you know, uh, with strikes um, and the like. And right at the bottom of the pecking order in terms of jobs um, was going to be 
these young black kids. You know, there was undoubtedly discrimination. There had been since, you know, the 1960s when their parents arrived in the country, or the 50s and 60s, rather. Um, and we as police officers were the ones that were having to deal with this crime wave. And, you know, I always say about the police, you know, we everybody blames everything on the police, but actually the, the police aren't responsible for poor housing. The police aren't responsible for poverty. You know, the police aren't responsible for kids bunking off a of school and getting in trouble. They're just the group of people wearing a uniform who have to deal with the consequences of it. Um, and I've got to be honest, I don't think we as a police force in 1975 were equipped to deal with this um, because it was complete, something completely out of our experience. Up until that time, there had been mass immigration prior to that. So, for instance, um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, we had floods of Eastern European, um, you know, Russians and Poles and, and the like uh, escaping um, from their home countries because of oppression. Um, and, you know, they, they flooded predominantly the east end of London. And, of course, you know, thousands upon thousands of people are coming from Poland or Russia or Timbuktu. A percentage are going to be criminals. Um, and the police, presumably in the 1800s and 1900s, had had to deal with those immigrants. And they used the same legislation um, to deal with those Im immigrants committing street crime um, that they used to deal with homegrown criminals throughout that period. And so when when all of a sudden there was this huge crime wave and a lot of it was being committed by young black kids, we used exactly the same legislation. But all of a sudden we were confronted by um, this, well, you're only, you're only doing it because we're black, you know, and liberal politicians um, supported that. Went, you know, well, it's clearly, you know, if you look at the statistics, you know, there's more black kids getting stopped than there are white kids and there's more black kids in prison than there are white kids. And, you know, the same, you hear exactly the same arguments going on when you listen to all the problems that have arisen since George Floyd. Uh, and that is that, you know, there a, a smaller percentage of the population seems to be committing more violent crime. And it's exactly the same here in the UK. And there's all sorts of reasons for it. Like I said, none of which have anything to do with the police. Um, you know, poverty, poor education, you know, poor housing, all those other things. You know, there's a whole plethora of things that create the social problem that results in higher crime. It's just that the police always seem to get the blame for it. And back then, it, in the 70s, we'd never experienced that before. We, you know, the police, the police could only do right up until the 1970s. The magistrates believed everything that we told them. Um, and now all of a sudden they didn't. And there was just a whole series of incidents. I can't go into them. You know, I haven't got time to go into them. Uh, really, but it was almost as if everything was building up to the 1981 riots. There had just been a series of, of situations um, that had gone on where effectively, you know, not embarrassed to admit it, but the, the police uh, and the predominantly young, younger part of the black community were at war with each other. You know, and it didn't matter how much you tried to make the peace. You know, you might build a fragile police in one one um, 
interaction one day and the next day you see the same people and you go and try and rebuild that you know positive inter interaction um and it would all go badly wrong uh, so when when it all went wrong in brixton in 1981 and, and you know there was this huge riot and, and police were having petrol bombs thrown at them and we had no fire retardant clothing you know we were we were conducting a riot wearing white shirts and black clip-on ties and and like you mentioned earlier, a Victorian Bobby's helmet. Um, you know, we had we had plastic riot shields, um, but that was it. And our, neither our tactics or our protective equipment was up to up to scratch. And you know, there was a lot of serious injuries. Uh, you know, both physical and in the long term, mental injuries as, as, as a result of it. Um, and it always seems to be the case in the in the UK. It's the same with arming the police that that progress only ever seems to be made in terms of protective equipment, tactics, strategies, policies, as a result of cock-ups. Yeah, um, you know, anybody that was a police officer in that era on the build-up to the eighty-one riots that was a street duty policeman could see it all happening, and was saying. We need this. We need this. We ought to be preparing for this. But it was almost as if senior officers just wanted to pretend it wasn't a problem, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think that's what I'm saying is, is we have to go back in, in history and, and keep learning lessons, keep looking for these warning signs. Because one thing that really s stuck out to me being a firefighter was you talked about the, the new crossfire where there was a house yeah. party and 13 um, black people were, were killed in that fire. Well, I, I, I think that was probably, like I, I didn't want to mention that one specifically, but that was the catalyst for the 81 riots, without a doubt. You know, that was the, like, the final straw that broke the camel's back, really. Yeah, but I mean, that was nothing. I mean, the fire wasn't started by the police, you know what I mean? So again, you know... Well, I, I, it, wasn't started by the, it wasn't started by the police and it, and it wasn't started by racists either. You know, there was this... Um, I mean, effectively what it was, it was a private party um, with predominantly West Indian kids um, and they were upstairs having a, a noisy party, basically. Um, and there were some adults downstairs um, uh, and at some point, someone, I don't know, dropped a cigarette that he did something, I don't know what it was, but um, a fire ensued. And because of the noise of the party upstairs, um, the kids didn't really realise what was happening until they were overcome by, by smoke. Uh, but it was straight away, the assumption was that it was a racist attack. Uh, and, it, and it simply wasn't, you know, from what we know now. But it's a bit like, you know, it's a bit like anything. It's a bit like, you know, George Floyd was the catalyst for a lot of the issues that you had last summer in the United States. Um, but there were other situations happening and all it takes is a rumour. That rumour doesn't have to be accurate. The 81 riots came about in Brixton because police were called to a stabbing where one, a young black kid had been stabbed by another young black kid. Um, and the, the police called that for an ambulance called for paramedics. It weren't paramedics really in 1981, but they called for an ambulance. Um, and the ambulance was taking too long. So the decision was made on the scene to just simply put this bleeding kid who was dying in the back of a police van uh, and get him to the hospital as quickly as possible. What the crowd saw was a load of policemen kneeling on a, on a black kid on the ground and then pick up this 
you know, kid covered in blood, shoved him in the back of a van. And they assumed that they'd, they'd beaten this kid up and arrested him and they'd done nothing of the sort. But that was, that was all it took to, you know, to, 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 to set, set the tinderbox alight, you know. Yeah, well, exactly. And I think that's that's such an important perspective because George Floyd, in my opinion, was an absolute horrendous, you know, loss of life that shouldn't have happened. He wasn't an angel. We know that, but it doesn't mean that he should have died. And, you know, watching even even the, the EMS portion of it from the, 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 the sound bites that I saw as a medic seemed like a complete lack of urgency. And, you know, there was just so many, so many things that were wrong with that. And so understandably, that family, that group of people should have been devastated by that. But as, as you mentioned, that's not the entire police service. And what I saw with last year was you had a bunch of people already cooped up because of the COVID lockdown, you know, and you had some tensions and that was just, that was the, you know, the straw that broke the camel's back. And sadly, law enforcement paid the price and, and a lot of civilians paid yeah, the price. absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and equally, you know, um, I, I have to admit, you know, that when you watch the George Floyd thing, it's hard not to feel the way that everybody does. But it's also worth remembering that police officers responded to that situation with no intention of harming anybody. You know, they turned up to investigate somebody who, um, you know, what, what had he done in the end? I can't remember what it was that he'd done. Uh, he got it was a fake, fake he, he, check, I think fake, it was. That, that fake, it was money, wasn't it? It was a fake bill, um, you know. And, and, and then ended up dealing with somebody who was clearly... Um, you know, drunk or you know, you know, on drugs in charge of a vehicle, um, and then you know when he started fitting or whatever it was that made him do it, they called for they called for paramedics. So, you know, we all criticise the, the the way in which they dealt with him while they were waiting for the ambulance. But you know, an ambulance had been called. It wasn't like they you know brutally beat him to death. Um, you know, uh, but but equally. You know, clearly, there's huge training issues, up, isn't there, uh, around excited delirium and all the other issues that, that come about uh, when police are in. You know, police always deal with people at their lowest ebb. You know, you very by the very nature of it, you get called to people when they're, you know, having a, a mental breakdown or you know they're they're emotionally disturbed or they're on drugs or whatever. You know, so they really should be better at dealing with it, I guess. Um, but I think we're fooling ourselves if we think something like that isn't going to happen again because, you know, we've had situations that have come very close to being George Floyd's in London since the George Floyd incident. When you look at video footage that, you know, gets put up on the on, on social media now and you go, wow, that looks really close, but you know in your heart of hearts that the police officers actually, you know, they're fully aware now post-George Floyd and the fact that they've all got body-worn cameras that they have to do the very best for people, but somehow it just doesn't look good, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. And I think that's the problem is that people argue one thing it's like it's like saying no guns or all guns, you know, there's that middle ground and, you know, there's no question, like you said, I, I, I say this many, many times on this show, if you are a racist and you are looking for an opportunity to hurt someone of a different color or a different creed or a different sexuality, whatever it is, 
becoming a police officer is the most fucking ridiculous idea <laughs> because you might one one day have that opportunity. You just go join, go be a skinhead, go join the KKK, whatever it is you want to go be amongst your friends and you can, you know, target people of different colors all day, every day, knock yourself out. So, you know, the, yeah. that blanket statement is so ridiculous. However, I do see fire, police, EMS, that as agencies lower the bar, as more people are able to walk through a door, as annual fitness standards aren't withheld, as annual training isn't held, you know, and standards aren't maintained, and people are, are added to, you know, double shifts, mandatory to stay, all those are elements that contribute to that one decision being the wrong decision. Absolutely. You know, and you could get a guy, I mean, uh, someone asked me the question, I think it was on um, the uh, Hard Nut uh, interview that I did. And I cited that case in Florida, where I think the police, I think I'm right in saying that the police officer has been charged with the murder of a, of a black male who fell asleep in his car in the drive through section of a Wendy's or McDonald's or whatever. Um, and uh, ultimately, they went to arrest him. Um, and at that point, when the moment they went to put the handcuffs on him, he made a grab and, and took a taser off of an officer and ran off. He fired the taser and he got, then he got shot. Do you know the incident I'm talking about? Yeah, I do, yes. Pretty famous. Yeah. And you look at that and you think, you know, everyone was outraged by it. And I go, do you know what? In, in 33 years as a, as a British police officer, you know, you know how polite we're expected to be as London Bobbies, I don't think I ever saw a single police officer demonstrate that much civility, that much patience, and that much politeness going through a drink-drive process with an individual. I mean, the guy was clearly lying right from the outset. You know, both the people, the, the, you know, the, the uh, staff in the, in the uh, drive-through, uh, the first police officer on the scene, had all seen him asleep at the wheel of his car. He was clearly drunk, and yet he was called Sir, um, he was asked questions. No one took the mickey out of him. Um, you know, he was he was made to do the field sobriety tests without any laughter. It was all done very professionally. Uh, and then it all goes to a ball of chalk when, at the moment of arrest, he grabs an officer's taser and gets shot. And you go, that officer is clearly professional. You know, just by his demeanour and the way that he dealt with that guy for nearly, you know, 40 minutes before he actually came to the point of arrest. You know, he didn't get up that morning thinking that he was going to shoot some fleeing felon in the back. Um, he went to work to do his job. And, um, you know, so, you know, you could go to the, you could go on shift, um, you know, fresh as a daisy and, and with all the best intentions. And as the shift wears you down, you know, you, you become a slightly different person as the shift goes on. And I think anyone that hasn't actually done that, whether they worked as a paramedic or as a police officer or as a, as a fireman, you know, it, they don't understand that. They just don't understand that, that the, the way that your own mindset can change during the course of a 24 or 12 hour shift. You know? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, speaking of that, so um, we're already an hour in. We haven't even talked about your arm responses yet. <laughs> so um, let's uh, kind of lead me into you know how you got into you know the arm response team, and then we'll we'll start with the uh, Northport siege. Okay. So well, we've, we've we've touched on the fact that you know I grew up in Sussex, um, not in a rural environment, but in a in a quiet seaside resort. You know, it was a it was seasonal, so for a lot of the year, the village was pretty well empty. Um, and I'd always had an interest in firearms, you know, like I said, BB guns, air guns, 
Um, and I got into private shooting and got a firearms certificate at the age of 18 when I was first able to, to, to shoot you know, proper firearms. Um, then I joined the police. Um, at the time I joined, there was about 27,000 officers, of which only about 4,800 were actually trained in the use of firearms. Um, and most of those were given their firearms courses initially because they'd been posted to central London where there was a lot of static armed protection points. So you needed an armed police officer to stand outside 10 Downing Street. You needed armed police officers to stand outside the Israeli embassy or the Houses of Parliament. And so young police officers, you know, straight out of training school were quite often given a shots course because it was seen as a, a boring and demeaning job um, that a, a rookie could do. Yeah. Um, I got posted to Lewisham. There weren't, there wasn't any diplomatic premises in Lewisham. There wasn't, I suspect, a single VIP living in Lewisham. So I never got a sniff of a firearms course until um, I joined the Special Patrol Group in 1981. Um, and Special Patrol Group um, was like the, the commissioner's quick response force, if you like. It was, you know, several hundred officers who worked together as a team uh, and they would do when there wasn't riots happening or there weren't major events taking place, um, would provide extra manpower to patrol areas which were having a particular crime problem. So let's say there was an outbreak of burglaries in Peckham, then a special patrol group would descend on Peckham and, and suppress that crime. Um, because their role and responsibilities also included responding to armed incidents and things of that nature, Virtually everyone on the SPG that wanted a firearms course got one. Um, and so I got uh, my basic firearms course on a Smith & Wesson Model 10, four-inch barrel, 38 Special military and police revolver, um, which was the standard, uh, standard handgun of the, of the, of the period. Um, the training consisted of four days on an indoor range, um, shooting various disciplines from... 25 yards, 15 yards, seven yards. Um, and if you pass that on the, on the afternoon of the fourth day, uh, you then went up to a place called Lippitz Hill, which was a disused Second World War prisoner war camp in the middle of a forest. Uh, and it did look like something straight out of a Second World War movie. You know, it's got wooden spider blocks and that sort of thing. Uh, and they had range facilities and a tactical training up area up there. And... Uh, in the space of about a day, um, they taught you just enough tactics to make you quite dangerous. <laughs> to yourself. Um, <laughs> yeah, to, to yourself, to the public, to everyone. And um, so I then returned to my unit as a shot. Um, and I would then, from that point on, go out fairly regularly, once or twice a week, perhaps, with a gun strapped to me. Um, I had my own body armour that I'd acquired from a mate in another armed unit that had access to body armour. But the SPG, didn't, we didn't have any body armor. <laughs> so most guys just went out with a revolver and, and just the, you know, what they were standing up in, they didn't, there was no armor as such. Um, I did that for about a year and a half. And then they asked for applicants for a unit called D11. And D11 was the unit that had actually trained me on the use of firearms. D department was training. Uh, it dealt with all aspects of training. And D11 was the unit within D department that dealt with firearms training. Uh, they asked for applicants. Um, by this time, I was doing competition shooting. Um, I'd been pretty dissatisfied with the standard and quality 
uh, of training that I'd received from D11. Um, I didn't see it as D11's fault. I just saw it as a fault of the, the system, basically. They were, they were given four days to train us. I'm sure they would have liked two weeks or a month to train us, but, you know, the powers that be had told them they had four days and four days what they, is what they did. They did as best they could in those four days. But I thought that the best way to drive things on was to be on the inside, trying to change it from the inside. So I joined D11, uh, did a six-week national instructor's course up at Lippitz Hill, uh, residential, sleeping in the in the uh, the old prisoner of war accommodation up there. Uh, I passed it, um, joined the unit. On our first day, which was a Monday, uh, they gave us our teams. There were four teams, and the four of us had passed it. Uh, I went to blue team. Uh, one of the guys, I think, was on red team, and they said, oh, you're, um, you're lucky because red team are team training this week. Go and see your team leader and, and draw your pager. And that was him. He was out on operations. There was no, we hadn't been selected for our operational role, but D department had, or D11 had an operational role, which was basically the Met SWAT team. So they had four six-man teams and that was it. And one six-man team was on standby every week on a, on a four-week rotation. Um, and so I started going out, you know, one week a month with blue team uh, training, providing our own training in-house and then getting called out on our pages to mainly to sieges, domestic situations, things like that. Um, but um, running parallel with that, um, firearms, the use, police use of firearms that I've already hinted at was pretty unprofessional. Um, and those officers who, like me, had just had a four day, four days on a range and one day of tactics were going out, kicking in doors and executing search warrants every day of the week all over London um, and carrying guns on surveillance operations and, and, and stakeouts and that sort of thing. And mistakes were being made because these officers weren't sufficiently trained. Um, and every time there was an accident, there would be consequences. So, for instance, an individual, a totally innocent individual, was shot by police and there was an inquiry into it. And almost immediately, the result of that inquiry was that we went from five-day basic firearms training course to a 10-day basic firearms training course. So we doubled the course and it was 50% tactics and 50% shooting. So straight away, there was a you know, 50% increase in efficiency, if you like. Um, one of the other consequences was that our operational teams started getting used more and more and more because the local commanders became more and more reticent about using their own officers, whether they benefited from a one-week basic firearms course or the new two-week basic firearms course, they still felt that they would rather call out better trained officers. And so it fell on us as instructors in our, in our, in our operational week to go out more and more. And um, so it got to the point really where we were so stretched that they had to make the department bigger and so on and so forth. So um, I, I really arrived at the crest of a wave. You know, we were getting used operationally a lot. I was gaining a lot of operational experience and I was able for three weeks out of four to pass that knowledge and experience on to 
the people I was training. So that's kind of that, that was kind of my introduction to the department. Right. Well, you mentioned about sieges. One that I remember as a as a young boy was when Yvonne Fletcher was killed. Um, so yeah. you know, tell tell me about the the role of your team specifically in some of those sieges because obviously we had the um the iranian embassy where we first got a glimpse of the sas but yeah so the iranian embassy siege happened um when i was on the spg a couple of years before i i applied for d11 um d11 would have been the first unit to respond to the iranian embassy siege would have been the diplomatic protection group if you remember trevor lock uh, the constable that had been um, guarding the premises has actually gone in. I think he'd been invited in for a cup of tea in the hallway of the embassy when the terrorists stormed in. And he'd been taken hostage and managed to keep his gun concealed under his uniform for the duration of the siege. Um, but the first officers that arrived on scene would have been his colleagues from the Diplomatic Protection Group. Uh, they contained the premises and probably within an hour, uh, D11 would have arrived at the scene. Um, with their extra weaponry. So they would have had sniper rifles. They also had a body of, of ordinary patrol officers who were trained on rifles, who were called divisional riflemen. So they would have been put into position um, and they would have been dealing with longer containment and intelligence gathering through their, through their scopes, um, while the D11 teams um, were involved on, on closer, sort of, uh, you know, up close and personal to the building. Um, providing protection for negotiators, providing protection for those office detectives who were sent forward to, to deliver food to the premises and things like that. Um, and they also would have had to come up with, a, with an initial plan to assault the premises if, if the hostages started killing um, terrorists, sorry, the terrorists started killing hostages early on, which fortunately they, they didn't do. Um, the, S- the SAS arrived, uh, put together an immediate action plan um, and, you know, by the end of the siege, they realised that their initial plan would have failed terribly. They would have probably all died in the process because as a siege goes on, you know, you're gaining intelligence all the time and your plans change. Um, so everybody knows the outcome of the Iranian embassy siege, but uh, and, and that it was 22 SAS that, that led the assault um, or, or did it, carried out the assault. But undoubtedly, D11 played a key role in terms of helping build up that intelligence picture that allowed the assault to be successful. Um, the SAS, um, for your American listeners, um, obviously in the United Kingdom, unlike the United States, uh, we're able to deploy our military in support of the, the civil powers. I know you've had National Guard recently in um, uh, in Washington, DC, um, but uh, in terms of, of the main military, my understanding is they can't be deployed uh, within within the United States. Um, in the United Kingdom, we have a we have a, a situation which allows for the for military to be deployed, but they're only going to be deployed in a terrorist situation, and then when it's uh, completely beyond the capability of the police. Um, so, Iranian embassy siege, SAS, and now of course everybody knows about the SAS, but at the same time. D11 were dealing with you know numerous criminal um, and domestic sieges, uh, and that really became our expertise. But as I said, as we started to get used more and more, we started to move away from our traditional siege role um, to also 
get involved in in criminal operations, so pre-planned operations against criminals. Uh, and that that's really how our role was training. It was changing. Right. Well, you, you mentioned. mentioned um, go on, sorry. I'm sorry. I was, I was, before we got to to Northport. So I, one thing that really um, stuck out to me as well is you talked about that horrendous murder. It was a survivalist, and he killed his his family, and then ultimately took his own life. And after after witnessing that, you know, that horrendous scene, you touched on, you know trying to process that now was was that one of the first events that you really became aware of the mental health toll of this of this uh, profession that we do yeah it, it, it's interesting I, by, by the time by the time i got involved in that incident i had about eight years service well, well nine years of service actually and um you would think that in nine years service as a police officer i was seeing lots of um, you know blood snot and gore and i had seen some um, but I could probably count on the on the fingers of two hands the amount of dead bodies I'd seen, um, and you know most of those would have been elderly people that had died in their sleep, and I just got called to the scene to you know force entry into the premises and find out why they hadn't been answering their phone, you know why there were half a dozen milk bottles outside the front of the house. Um, I I'd never really dealt with any particularly gruesome road traffic incidents. Um, I'd been on scene a couple of murders, um, stabbings, um, and I'd seen, you know, black and white folk, crime scene photographs. But up to that point, I hadn't seen an awful lot of death. Um, and we entered the, the, the premises after a period of, of laying siege to it, trying to establish by conventional methods and by technical methods as to whether or not the suspect was still alive in the premises and waiting to ambush us. Um, and when we went in, the first thing I found was we found two dead bodies uh, in the living room. But I didn't think they were dead. They just looked like they were asleep and they had cans of lager next to them. Um, and the television was still on. And I thought, Jesus, we've been sitting outside these premises for hours and the, the stupid idiots are just drunk and fallen asleep. Um, and it was only when we examined them you know, closely that we discovered they were dead. Then I discovered the father in the hallway dead. And then ultimately um, we found that... The, the son that was responsible and he'd um, stuck a 44 magnum in his mouth uh, and pulled a trigger so he clearly wasn't with us anymore and uh, I think it was just the volume you know the four bodies in situ um, you know one after the other finding them as I went through the, the premises and I, I just it was the first time I think I'd actually been depressed at the end of a, a tour of duty does that make sense Oh, completely. You know, I've been a police officer for, for I've been a police officer for eight years. I'd seen lots of sort of bad shit, uh, and I had good days and bad days. But I'd never actually gone home and thought, well, "Is this what you really want to do?" You know, because actually, that could be you laid out on the slab there. You know, um, and like I said in the book, what it, what I did is I just I just took my time to process it um, and just sort of made a promise to myself that I wasn't going to be the guy on the slab and that I was going to be as professional as I possibly could in everything that I, I did in relation to, to my job. Um, and so I sort of took a positive out of it, if you like. But, but yeah, I, I guess, you know, it, it probably was a little bit of sort of mild depression, I think. Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's a very important moment, though, I think, you know, because we're, we're going to talk, obviously, about you know, the shootings next. But, 
you know, identifying that, understanding that that's normal, you know, it's a normal reaction. Yeah. And then, you know, I think it does two things. It, it sends you hopefully on a path of positive ways of dealing with that personally. But also, like you said, it should also foster ownership of the policeman, the firefighter, who, you know, whoever, that the only thing we can control is our skills and our fitness, you know, our training levels. So that, you know, that I think is, is a is a huge wake up call for us to be, you know, to, to be mindful of always trying to be a little bit better after each day that we work than we were the night before. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, I, I can honestly say that, and we're going to talk briefly about the, the incidents where I have ended up having to resort to the use of firearms and, and I have killed and seriously injured individuals. And I can honestly say that, that I've never lost a moment's sleep as a, as a result of those actions. And I think a lot of that is down to probably that wake up call of that, that siege, you know, that was a, uh, this is serious time. You know, this is, this is actually the consequences of what you do on a range. You know, when you go on a range and you shoot a paper target, these four bodies here, this is, this is actually the end result, you know, um, and it's something that you need to take on board. And I think one of the, one of the reasons that a lot of people, um, the police officers that find themselves in shooting situations struggle afterwards is because they haven't really taken that on board. You know, it, training is a bit of fun. You go down the range, you know, once a quarter and you do your qualification shoot, you do a bit of tactics training, you shoot at each other with simunition rounds. Everyone has a bit of a laugh. Um, but you, you, you haven't got your brain into a place when you're conducting that training that is actually inoculating you for the for the the after effects of a real situation, hundred you know, percent. I've, I've been I've been accused in the past, you know, when we've been conducting uh, training, and guys have said to me, "Oh wow, and you were in the zone there, Tony. You were fucking living it." And I'm, "Well, you're not. What are you doing there then? You know, that's why we're here. Um, you've got to throw it into it, hundred percent. You've got to, uh, you, you know, so so that when it does happen, you're not sitting there going, "Well, oh, this isn't supposed to be happening." Happening. You should be thinking this is familiar territory. I've been here. Yeah. You know, no, I I've, couldn't. I've, I couldn't agree I've, more. I've done a reload. I've done a reload under fire before. It might. Not, it might have been simunition. It might have been blanks. But you know, I, I've taken it for real, and I've got down behind substantial cover, and I've done a slick reload, and I've saved those spare rounds that were in that other magazine. Um, you know, and so so here I am for real, and no difference. It's the same. Yeah, no, completely. And that's what I've always found on on the training ground too. And I'm not saying I'm a great firefighter, but I wanted to be pushed to be as good as I possibly can. So when I went on on training incidents, for example, and they had a 60-pound mannequin to represent the person we're dragging out, you know, or, you know, just just some light smoke, no heat, no furniture, you know, any of that stuff. I want the worst-case scenario in my training so like you said you have that to fall back on you fall to your level of training yeah i I used to hate it when you go training because i you know my like i said you know day one in the department my primary job was as an instructor and as the decades rolled by i became less involved in training and more involved in operations because that's all really where my heart was but when i was involved in training i tried to make that training as realistic as possible but more often than not, when I went training, um, it was as a student, if you like. You know, it was refresher training because we used to train. Um, so by the time I left the department, we had six operational teams 
and one week in six would be a dedicated training week. And then you would provide in-house training between jobs for the remaining, the remaining period of that, of that, uh, of that cycle. Um, so you go down to training and you'd find that instructor had laid on some stuff for you. And there's six of you um, and there's six simulation blocks with six magazines and six simulation MP5s with six magazines. And you're going, where's spare magazines? Oh, you're not going to need spare magazines. And you're going, well, yeah, I am. And they'd always look at me like I was the troublemaker. <laughs> Come on, Tony, you know, just go with the flow and just take, take your one single magazine and, and be happy with it. And I'm going, but what if I get a malfunction on that magazine? I want to be able to go as I would do for real to my second pouch and get out a second magazine. I don't want to be putting my hand in the air and going, oh, excuse me, my gun stopped and I can't, I can't clear the stoppage. You know, I want to be able to do it in exactly the same way as I'll do it if it happens to me for real tomorrow. And you're not letting me do that, you know. Yeah. Well, especially with the, the physical and mental exertion, I think one of the problems that we, one of the mistakes that we make in training a lot of times is, you know, you do your little classroom brief and you walk out, you throw your gear on and then off you go. Instead of, you know, getting people to maybe do some PT first, you know, and get them, get them anxious, get them uh, tired. And then you start the evolution just like you would when you had that adrenal dump, when you're on the way to something, you know, is going to be awful. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, th th that old Roman adage of, you know, um, train hard, fire easy. Everybody, everybody, it rolls off everybody's tongues, but very few people actually do it because human beings are essentially lazy. And if they can do it without having to get all the kit on, you know, or you know, they used to say things like, um, oh, yeah, don't, don't worry with radio. You're not going to need your radios. Well, a radio is an integral part of what we, what we do. If I'm doing live fire room combat, you know, going through a, a CQB house firing, you know, live ammunition at targets and mannequins and stuff, um, I still want to be able to, to like, use my radio to, to, to relay information that, I would relay for real in a real operation. So don't tell me you don't want, you know, oh, you're not going to need your radios because you can't be asked to, to monitor it or the rest of the team can't be asked to, to uh, they didn't bring fresh batteries or whatever. You know, if you're going to train with kit, then train with kit because actually, you know what's going to screw up and let you down more than just about anything else on an operation? Communications. Your radio is going to go down on you, you know, so... You need to practice with that and be as familiar with it as you can because we, you know you know what when you're wearing gloves, just the press to talk switch on your on your comms isn't as easy to find as it is, you know when when you're in training with no gloves on. So wear gloves, you know. Use your PTT switch to communicate when you're in training. Yeah, we have the emergency buttons or the mayday button, which is tiny, especially some of the older models. And you know, I just had a fireman on recently who basically got burned because he had to pull his fire glove off to initiate that button because he just couldn't well, get there you it. Go. Pushed, and, you know. and one of the reasons is probably because in the past he's conducted his training and hasn't been using the radio, so he's never, you know, he's never actually been under pressure and tried to tried to use his radio with his glove on, you know, yeah. in training. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that department was well trained too. But again, it's a different thing when you have that, you know, like you said, that stress. But and also our gloves. I mean, we're talking about technology. Our gloves are like you know pillows strapped to our hands, and then there's got to be yeah. a better technology. But again, I'm sure it's it's the financial yeah, side. Yeah. 
But um, all right. Well, then I would love to kind of get through to December twenty sixth, nineteen eighty five at Northport. Then can I can I just can I just I know I'm, we're definitely going over now, but can I just quickly come back to Yvonne Fletcher because you mentioned her. For those that don't know, Yvonne Fletcher was uh, an unarmed uh, policewoman as part of a cordon um, in front of a, a, a noisy but peaceable crowd. Uh, of predominantly expat Libyans demonstrating against Colonel Gaddafi in 1984, April 1984. Um, and she had her back to the Libyan People's Bureau, which was their embassy, except it wasn't an embassy because the British government had withdrawn diplomatic relations with Gaddafi's Libya several years before. So her back is to the embassy, and all of a sudden, somebody in the embassy fires a burst from what turned out to be a 9mm submachine gun which hit about five people in the crowd. Some were seriously injured, some minor injuries, but one stray nine millimeter round passed through Yvonne Fletcher and um, she died in the ambulance on the way um, to the, the hospital. And her fiance, a man by the name of John Murray, who was a police officer with her, uh, held her hand in the ambulance on the way home, um, on the way to the, uh, sorry, to the, the hospital and, and promised her that he would, he would see the killer arrested. And we lay siege to that premises for 11 days. Um, and obviously there were there were the police negotiators talking to people inside, but what we didn't really know was that the Home Office and the British government were negotiating direct to the occupants inside and also to the Libyan government. And, it's, and a deal was struck that has never been publicly made clear what that deal was. But on the 11th day, I, I'm happy to say I wasn't there, but my colleagues on the day shift, because I was doing a 12-hour night shift, had to watch the entire occupants, none of whom were diplomats, leave the premises, uh, get into a coach and be taken for a debrief by the Home Office. They weren't searched, the diplomatic bags weren't opened, and then they were put on a flight and sent back to Libya to a hero's welcome. Um, no one's ever been charged with a murder. Um, John Murray um, is still trying to get a conviction. He's got so close on so many times. He, um, he did a Freedom of Information Act to the uh, request to the US government um, about intelligence relating to a possible attack in London. And he got literally a crate full of documents arrived from the US government. But he's had nothing but barriers put in his way from the British government. Um, and so that's still ongoing to this day. Uh, and even now, we're hoping that this is going to be debated uh, in the Houses of Parliament within the next month. Um, but so no one has ever been brought to justice for, for Yvonne's murder. So yeah, pretty frustrating. No, it is. Yeah. I remember as a, as a little boy watching that. I can still see it now in my head. Her, her, you know, them zooming into her hat, just yeah. sitting there on the street. So yeah. the fact that I mean, I didn't know about it. I mean, I just read your book the last three days, and you know, I'm there with my you know jaw open that they just yeah. let them walk away. So, I mean, I, yeah. I hope, I hope and that, that was Maggie, get... and that And that was Maggie Thatcher. I've got a huge regard for Maggie Thatcher, but that was her government that allowed that to take place. And we still don't know why. We think that, we think that the British government were warned by um, the Americans uh, that they'd intercepted um, intelligence to suggest that there was going to be an attack in London the following day. But the, that information wasn't, uh, passed to Metropolitan Police, um, but that's just one of one of many 
strange things. I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any stretch of the imagination, but you know that can't be right. A British policewoman unarmed is killed, and the British government effectively protecting her killer. Yeah, well, it's funny because people use the word conspiracy theory, you know, so much now that when you just question something that doesn't make any sense, sometimes it's called conspiracy. You know, I mean, even even like with the COVID thing at the moment, if you're not all in with the masks, then you know you're a conspiracy theorist. Like, well, hey, no, maybe I just don't think that you know they do what you think they do, and I think we should also be talking about health. You know, but yeah, yeah. so yeah, yeah, it's it's funny how sometimes that polarizing philosophy I'm, I'm can actually pers- stop. I'm personally, I'm personally a, a problem with the belief that if my boxer shorts can't contain one of my farts, <laughs> then I'm pretty certain <laughs> that that piece of cloth over my face isn't going to do any good. That said, if it makes people feel safer and it's the right thing to do, then I'll do it because I like to think I'm a good citizen. I'm certainly not going to make a fuss and refuse to wear it just to make a point you know yeah i'm exactly the same i i, I wear it to you know i'm more diligent than most people that believe you know it's funny because they'll have yeah. their nose sticking out they'll they won't follow the arrows in the supermarket I'm like, well if you're going to ask me to to do this i'll do it like you said i don't want to freak anyone out i don't personally think it's doing what you think it is but i wish we were talking about obesity and all these things as well but yeah. in the meantime you know i will i will play along so like you said it's not freaking anyone else out yeah because it's the right thing to do. Exactly. Well, thank you for catching us up on the story with Yvonne because, you know, again, that's that's something that needs to be heard. All, all these areas where, you know, there isn't justice, whether it was, you know, what we were talking about earlier with, with some of these um, police-involved shootings that shouldn't have happened, whether it's, you know, Yvonne's death or some of these other law enforcement officers that were killed, you know, those all need to be resolved. And the fact that that's been sitting around for... God, almost 40 years is unacceptable. So I would love then to uh, to transition to your first shooting at Northport then. Okay, so um, as I said, um, our operational role was getting busier and busier. By 1985, I'd been in the department two years. Um, you know, I was quite an experienced team member. Um, it was Christmas time, um, 1985. I wasn't uh, on the operational standby team, but because of um, not cuts, but because of uh, internal economics, for want of a better word, um, there was only one standby team on duty over that Christmas period, and that was Red Team. And they responded to a domestic situation where a guy called Errol Walker, um, who'd not that long previously been released from a very short prison sentence um, because he'd turned. Um, Queen's Evidence, which is like, um, what is it in the United States when you uh, you give evidence on behalf of the government? States, uh, it, uh, states? Yeah, turn states, I think, is what they say. Yeah, yeah, okay. Well, in, in the UK, it's turns Queen's, turns Queen's Evidence. Um, and he, he um, uh, informed on uh, the robbery team that he was a part of. They'd all got long sentences, and he'd got um, a short term in protective custody. Um, and he came out, um, went straight back to his old haunts, made no attempt to keep his head down, um, went back to his his wife. Um, who had, and the, between them, they had a, a small girl who was like four years of age. And she had sickle cell anemia, so she wasn't a well child. Um, during the course of a period of months, he repeatedly beat his girlfriend, sorry, his wife, uh, and rape her. 
Um, she reported it to the police. Um, but back then, domestic violence wasn't treated in the same way it is now. Uh, and unless they showed a willingness to go court and get a summons out against um, their assailant, then the police pretty well said, well, you need to go and see a solicitor because it's a civil case, it's a civil matter. It's, it's nothing to do with us. So anyway, eventually she left the family home with her daughter and uh, moved into a flat with her half-sister and her daughter of a similar age. Um, and they were there over the Christmas period. And on Christmas Day, um, Errol Walker turned up demanding to see his daughter. His wife fled the flat, went to a next-door neighbour to use the, their phone. Uh, obviously, this was pre-mobile phones. So she went to use the next-door neighbour's phone and dialed 999, uh, called for police response. Um, but in the time it took her to, to get out and get into the flat next door, he had tried to take his own child. Um, the half-sister, uh, whose name was Jackie, um, had tried to stop him. He had taken a 12-inch kitchen knife and stabbed her 14 times in the upper torso neck. One of the stab wounds went through the left side of her neck and out the right-hand side of her neck. And the final fatal uh, thrust went down behind her collarbone into her thoracic area and penetrated her heart. Um, and um, he threw her body out the window. So now he's inside the flat with both his own child and the dead woman's child, and the mother's on the outside screaming. Police arrive. Um, they contain him inside the flat. Um, local cops, not negotiators, but local cops managed to negotiate with him to release his own child, who's obviously not well. And the siege then went on for two days, effectively. We get called in um, after Red Team have been on duty for about 14 hours, 15 hours. We, we replaced them. Um, and straight away, uh, new negotiators arrived on scene who didn't want to play ball. The negotiators that had been there day one with Red Team um, had liaised completely with the tactical team. Whenever they went forward to talk to uh, Errol Walker through the window, because clearly he didn't have a firearm, he only had knives, um, the team would come right up close so they'd be in immediate support. Um, but he would always be using the child as a shield um, and the team were never in a position where they could have actually done anything. When we changed over, so did the negotiators, and the new negotiators wanted us nowhere near the premises. In fact, they didn't want us on the balcony at all. They wanted our, Errol Walker had been complaining about seeing armed police officers. He didn't want to see police, police officers. Um, and so this, these negotiators basically bent to everything that Errol Walker asked for. Um, he tortured the child in front of the negotiators, cut her arm down to the bone, little four-year-old child. He put a plastic bag over her head and beat it with a police radio that the negotiators had given them. Police negotiators gave him the radio because he was convinced that they were plotting, we were plotting to, to uh, rescue the child and he wanted the radio so that he could have proof so he could listen into the police transmissions. Um, at one point, he uh, took an electrical appliance ripped it out of the wires and threatened to electrocute the girl. Um, another point, he hung her by the ankles out the window so that her blood dripped on the, uh, the fire uh, brigade guys that were waiting at the bottom with a blanket to catch her if he dropped her. Um, pretty horrendous, really, all around. Uh, on another occasion, 
they um, let the girlfriend, or sorry, the wife go forward so close that Errol Walker actually grabbed her at knife point and nearly succeeded in dragging back into the premises. Despite that, they let her go forward again. Errol Walker said he didn't like the look of that sledgehammer that was, that was on the balcony, so asked her to get rid of it. So she picks up the sledgehammer, turns to the negotiator a couple of yards away and says, well, what should I do with it? And they said, I'll just throw it over the edge so he can see you're throwing it over the edge. Never bothered to tell the fire brigade below, and the sledgehammer nearly took out one of the fire brigade personnel. So there was very little coordination going on between the negotiators and the tactical team. Um, and the on-scene commander was listening to everything that the tactical team, sorry, the, the, everything that the negotiators said, um, but was very distrustful of the tactical team because we had guns and he didn't like guns. So anyway, long story short, um, the negotiators lost control of the incident. Errol Walker came out on the balcony with a knife. Uh, my colleagues at the other end of the balcony thought he was making an escape because he started running down the balcony at a sprint with a knife in his hand. They broke cover. Um, Errol Walker wasn't trying to escape. He, he tried to grab an abandoned riot shield that the, the first officers on scene had left on the balcony when they retreated. Um, he threw the balcony and sorry, threw the um, the uh, riot shield in the face of my colleagues and managed to get in the door and slam the door shut in the face of, the, of my colleagues. Me and my mate are at the other end of the balcony. We're still unaware of what's going on. We just hear a load of shouting. And when we stick our head around the corner, there are colleagues at the door. So we join them. Uh, one of my colleagues threw a stun grenade in. I threw a stun grenade in. And then we clambered in through the windows. I just happened to be the first guy that got into the room. Um, our stun grenades at the time uh, were one loud single report that created a lot of overpressure. It literally blew all the glass out of the windows. It also blew all of the, lamp the lights. So there were no bulbs left intact in the flat. Um, and so the place was in semi-darkness. It was light outside, but the curtains were pulled. So I didn't have a lot to go by. Um, I shouted in to drop the knife. Uh, and as I did so, and to this day, I, I can't honestly tell you what the exact sequence was. I'll, I'll never know whether I fired immediately before he stabbed the little girl, as he stabbed the little girl, or immediately after he stabbed her. I don't know. It all happened really, really quickly. Uh, but everything I'd ever read about um, tacky psych syndrome, about um, everything slowing down, about perceptual distortion, uh, all of that. Every, every last, you know, tick in the box for, for that um, I experienced. You know, I, the stun grenade normally, if there was no adrenaline flowing, would have had your ears whistling for weeks, let alone firing three 38 special rounds in the confines of a small living room. But not only did I not hear the stun grenades detonating, but I didn't hear my gunshots either. Um, and I didn't suffer ringing in my ears afterwards either. It's a very, 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 very weird experience. And I just remember seemed to have an inordinately long time to think through in my decision-making process. I remember having a bit of an argument about myself about using the sights because half of my brain was telling me that I needed to find my sights to take a, a clinical surgical headshot on the suspect that was using the little girl as a shield. Another half of my brain was saying, you're wasting your time. You're never going to see your front sight in this light conditions. Just get on with it. 
Um, so I fired two shots, a, a double tap, uh, for the furthest point of his body away from the little girl. Um, you know, that they, they were both, you know, they were both black. The room was in darkness. Um, all I could see literally was their eyes and their teeth um, and, a, and a rough bit of outline of, you know, of their bodies. So I fired at the furthest point away from the little girl and he flinched at that point. And in doing so, he sort of hunched up his shoulders and exposed his right temple to, to me. And I fired a third and final shot, sort of semi-aimed. And I now know that it clipped the top of his shoulder and went into his, uh, went into his uh, skull uh, just behind his ear uh, and actually penetrated his skull and into his brain and effectively gave him the sort of symptoms of a stroke in the long term. Uh, but I just saw his eyes roll up into his head um, and he collapsed uh, and dropped the little girl. So one of my mates, who was sort of second or third in the room, pulled the curtains open. The room was full of smoke. Um, I could see this, just the knife handle protruding out of this little girl's, um, top of this little girl's chest. Uh, and our very basic first aid at the time, I remembered that you should never try to remove a knife, but you should try and stabilise it and put a dressing around the outside of it. But as I got hold of the, the handle to do that, she just slumped and the knife literally just sort of fell out of her chest cavity. So I threw that on the floor. Um, I took a shell dressing out. Um, I remember opening that with my teeth because um, I was sort of cradling the little girl and I literally just slapped it on a, onto the, the wound on a on a neck. Um, and my, my, my sort of thought process by that point was, you just killed someone. You need to get as far away from what you've just done as possible. I know that sounds a bit bizarre. I'm not suggesting it was a guilt thing. It was just like, you don't need to dwell on this. You've just killed somebody. Don't even look at him. Just concentrate on doing something positive. Get the little girl. Get the fuck out of Dodge. Um, so I remember my mates trying to peel the, the barricades away from the door that he'd put up. Um, he'd stuck a mattress and another door up against the front door. So he grabbed all that out, uh, managed to open the door, and I ran out onto the balcony and uh, ran down the stairs. I remember running past the negotiators and just looking at the, the look of shock on their face. And I just I wanted to stop and basically say to them, see what you've done? Yeah, see what you've done with your, you know, bowing to every whim of this bloke? Um, anyway, I didn't. I went down the stairs and I handed the, um, handed the little girl over to the ambulance crew. And then... Um, I was wearing a all, all sort of black kit with a black Gore-Tex jacket because it's, it's middle of winter. It was freezing cold. Um, and what I'd done is for the duration of the siege, because we were out on the balconies, I'd kept my revolver in the mat pocket on the front of my, my um, Gore-Tex jacket. And so as I'm wandering through this predominantly black, predominantly angry crowd, um, trying to help the ambulance get through them and get out onto the main road, I suddenly realised I still had my revolver in my hand. So I sort of snuck that back into the map pocket. Uh, and then I was going back up the stairs, and, and I had a choice when I got to the top of the stairs. I could turn right and go back to the, the stronghold and, and see, see what it was like in the cold light of day. And a big part of me wanted to do that. You know, there was a copper's instinct to be nosy really and I want, desperately wanted to go back in the flat but the other half of me was thinking about a lecture that we'd had from FBI hostage rescue team um, 
about a month previously, and they talked about their post-incident procedure. And up to this point, the unit had never had a shooting. We didn't have a post-incident procedure. It was just like, we'll cross that bridge if it ever comes, but it'll never happen because our tactics are so good that we'll never get involved in the shooting. And me and some of my more astute mates have been going, well, we should do, we should have some policy. You know, what are we going to do if, if one of us does get in a shooting? You know? And I remember the FBI guys saying that their policy was that whoever pulled the trigger got grabbed by one of the teammates and taken away from the environment straight away so that he didn't have a particularly good fresh memory of the scene, of the body of the person that he just shot, etc. And so I've got these two voices in my head, one turn left, one turn right. And I decided to uh, turn right, sorry, turn left, go back to the the, um, the apartment that we'd taken over as a as a control uh, point um, and make coffee for the rest of the team and make some bacon sandwiches for the rest of the team. So that's what I did. That's very English. So that was, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was my first shoot. And it was quite funny, actually, because I remember guys coming in talking about being English, you know, with this... One of the guys, he was much older than me, uh, probably 20 years older than me, um, an ex-military guy, another Tony, actually, and a real character, a real Cockney character. Uh, and he came up to me and, and put his hand out, and I shook his hand, and he hugged me. You know, he like, proper pulled me into me and gave me a proper bear hug, you know. And uh, I remember thinking, it was like, I thought, this is a bit gay. <laughs> I remember thinking... We're Brits, you know. Yanks like hug each other and do that sort of shit. We don't, we don't do that sort of stuff because we, we were, we were literally about a decade away from men doing bear hugs in the UK at that point. But uh, yeah, and then we sort of brushed each other off, and it was a bit like that, uh, that movie. I can't remember what it is. You know, what about them bearers, huh? <laughs> the two blokes wake up in bed naked next to each other. Like, oh, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> it was quite funny. So, yeah, so that was our first shooting. The department had never had one before. They didn't really know what to do with me. Um, so this was Boxing Day. I can't remember what, what day it actually fell on. Uh, but very shortly thereafter, we, we sort of um, went back to work after Christmas leave. I went and saw the armourer. He issued me with a new revolver. And it was never discussed again. I was never interviewed by, by um, you know, internal affairs. Um, I never made a statement. It was almost like, well, we didn't expect that to happen, and we, 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 let's not let's just not talk about it. <laughs> Errol Walker never made a complaint against me uh, because actually he told his lawyers that he wanted me to to shoot him, and he'd forced me into shooting him, and um, I'd done the right thing. So, so I never got an official complaint. So therefore, I was never investigated. And the little girl made it. <laughs> Yeah, she did. Actually, um, she was. It was. It was really nice. That the, the um, obviously uh, the her mother was dead, and so she was immediately uh, her care was taken over by her grandparents. And literally, by the time we got back to work after Christmas, there was this big um, thank you card uh, from the grandparents thanking the eleven for giving them giving them back their their granddaughter um actually they they it looked like she was going to lose her arm um although she'd been stabbed behind her clavicle and down into her chest cavity um the surgeons were more concerned about the the wound to her hand which was over a day old um where he cut her down to the bone 
Um, and then I think he'd use an old tea towel to wrap it or something. So I think they were more concerned that infection had set in and that she might lose her lose her arm. Um, but yeah, I mean, she was a young kid. She bounced back. Interestingly enough, you know, decades later when I came up for trial after my final shooting, um, the press uh, doorstopped um, the um, Errol Walker's wife um, and tried to interview her to get her to say during the trial this was that you know I was a I was a I was a killer cop because you know I'd shot her husband um, and she um, she basically told them to Foxtrot Oscar and said <laughs> that you know I'd, I'd, I'd done exactly the right thing and it's just a shame that I hadn't killed him basically yeah well that's such a such a powerful perspective like you said from the family's you know point of view and even even that raw emotion between you and your mate for that moment i mean that british stiff upper lip as we know now is one of the enemies of yeah, yeah. of actually dealing with this shit you know you can't just you know be uh stiff as a board and not react to the fact that you just a saw that horrendous abuse of a child and b had to take a life or, or thought you had to take a life yeah, but I think, but I, but I think also is that part of that stiff upper lip went went with it, it, it didn't stiff upper lip never stands alone. You know, you're absolutely right. I'm sure people that you know, um, you know, of that era, say the Second World War, who, who, who you know would never would never be seen out in public without a shirt and tie and a hat. You know, that sort of person with a stiff upper lip. Um, yeah, but. The stiff upper lip together with the sort of cockney sense of humour and the sort of dark humour that goes with emergency services, I think is a lifesaver. And sadly in the UK, um, certainly in the police service, that dark humour has almost been kicked into the long grass because it's inappropriate, um, you know, and is seen as sexist or racist or, you know, just inappropriate. Um, everybody's scared to, to laugh or joke anymore. And I think that, 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 you know, there's no police stations in London now or very few police stations in London and there's very few police canteens. And the one thing you you had to um, de-conflict with stuff that you store out in the street was to go back to the canteen, have a cup of tea and laugh about the headless corpse that you just dealt with, you know? Yeah, no, yeah, completely. Sounds awful. No, it but, doesn't. And it's the same as but, a fire station table. Exactly the yeah. same. Exactly. But unfortunately, you know, those that have never experienced it, um, who run the show now and who think it's inappropriate, have left us, you know, with a, an atmosphere now where people are afraid to, to speak and afraid to joke. And I think that's got an awful lot to do with mental health issues. Um, you know, without a doubt, there was mental health issues that were hidden in the 80s and 90s. Um, but I think it's worse now because there's, there isn't, there, there might be, programs and stuff but not everybody wants to go on a program you know the old thing of all going over the pub after work and having a few beers and just getting drunk you know it does help i don't care what anybody says yeah no absolutely well it's funny because i was talking to someone i forget who it was now but i think it was like yesterday there is a place for stoicism. There's a place to be that cool, calm collector. And that's when you're getting shot at. That's when I'm going into a fire. That's when a medic's working a code, you know, but then that doesn't pertain to after the event. After the event, when you, when is when everything washes over you. And then you have to remind yourself that you're a human being, not a cyborg. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You've got to be honest. 
Absolutely. Well, so what about your processing of that first incident then? I mean, that must have been, you know, quite the blow for you. You didn't end up killing the man, but I mean, you were still forced to that point. So did you struggle processing that first time at all? Not at all. And I think a lot of that was because of what we were talking about earlier, about taking training seriously. Um, To me, the type of shooting that we used to do when I joined the unit was very much ready on the left, ready on the right, ready on the firing line. You know, this shoot is a three-second exposure at 15 yards. On each exposure, you will fire two rounds. It was that. It was just completely unrealistic. And one of the things that I brought to the party when I joined was that I used to do IPSIC shooting, uh, practical pistol shooting, which was obviously still legal back then in the UK. And so me and a few of our colleagues that were like-minded, we'd go on weekends and we'd do these competition shoots and we'd look at each other and we'd go, that, that, uh, that last uh, shoot there, that, that would be really good on team training next week. Why don't, why don't we change it a little bit and do this and do that and, and then add a body at the bottom that's got to be dragged back and all this sort of stuff. And we just make it more complicated. So we just started doing lots and lots of one at a time shoots where just one guy would have to go down the range with as, as little instruction as possible. You know, if you think about it, every time a police officer's on a firing range, he's told what distance he's at. He's told uh, whether he's going to be using his sights or whether he's going to be doing instinctive shooting. He's, being, he's going to be told how long the bad guy is going to be there for. When's that going to happen? Yeah. He's told how many rounds to fire. He's told how to reload, when to reload. You know, there is no thought process. All you've got to do is concentrate on accuracy, on marksmanship. If, on the other hand, you're given a load of instructions and you've got to make your way down the range, you've got to go over obstacles, you've got to open a door, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you've got, and then you've got to identify the hostile targets and the innocent targets, and then you've got to drag a dummy back. You know, what that's making you do is it's making you shoot not instinctively but it's making you all of these skills you have to build them up sort of subconscious conscious like you, you remember the first time I, I always say this to an american audience and it always falls flat on its face because everybody drives automatics but if you were driving a shift stick you know the first time you learn to use the clutch in a vehicle that's like trigger control yeah but for most people driving the car you soon develop this unconscious ability to bring the clutch up to breaking point and then just ease it up and you pull away smoothly from the curb without any problem at all. But most people never get to that same level of unconscious consciousness with a, with, with a trigger. And so their accuracy suffers dramatically. But the more you educate people to, to do that process while they're thinking about other things, the better it gets. And that first shoot, for me, that for the, the Northolt incident, the only thing that I did in that flat in Northolt that was different from what I would do on the ranges at Lippitz Hill was throw my left hand in the air and shout time at the end of the shoot <laughs> to stop the clock <laughs> or, or, or shoot the head plate, you know, to stop the clock. Um, so it, it, to me, it was, just, um, it was just confirmation that the type of training that I was trying to instill in the department and trying to, to push out to all of the other people that we trained in the use of firearms was, was the way to go that was valid, you know. Um, and I, I, didn't become, I certainly didn't become a celebrity. I, I know that 
you know, there might there was probably a little bit of petty jealousy from some of the other teams and things like that because uh, people are people, you know. And, uh, but so, there, but there were no there were no ill consequences whatsoever to my first shooting. I wasn't criticised. As far as everyone was concerned, I was forced into that situation by bad bad scene management by the senior officers. I should never have had to shoot. He should have been shot by a sniper at day one. You know, it shouldn't it shouldn't have been up to me to have to clamber through a window over obstacles, throw stun grenades, and then go into a darkened room with no light on my weapon because we didn't have torches on on our weapons there. Torches for American listeners, I mean flashlights. <laughs> um, I ran some SWAT training in Utah once, and I was talking about you know into the room, you know, primary sweep, use use your torch, and on about the second day, this guy come up to me, and you could see his buddies had pushed him forward, and he goes, "Tony." Uh, when you uh, when you say uh, torch on your MP5, you, you mean flashlight, right? And I went, yeah. No, get a stick you. and set fire to it. <laughs> we, we, we thought you guys were serious motherfuckers. You had like fucking flamethrowers on your guns or something. You know? <laughs> and try and hit them in the fanny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Two, well, language, two people divided by a common language. Oh, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's quite funny, some of the changes. So I have to watch what I say, and you know, if I'm talking about cigarettes and, you know, offend the homosexual yeah, yeah, yeah. community. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I was just talking yeah. about cigarettes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. The amount of people on Facebook in the UK who just, I'm, 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 I've been put into Facebook prison for the day because I, I said smoking a fag. <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Well, then, so about a year and a half went by. Obviously, you were, you know, still performing your duties, and then you found yourself at Plumstead Abattoir. So let's uh, let's talk about shooting number two. I've always said that my my shootings sort of um, uh, plot the development of my department. So I said to you at the very beginning that you know when we when I first joined, all we ever really got deployed on was sieges and Northolt was the classic the classic siege and the first one where we'd actually had to conduct a hostage rescue uh, and actually the first one where we'd ever had to use stun grenades and obviously the first one where we'd ever had to shoot suspect. Um, but we were getting busier and busier and not only were we getting used on sieges, we were starting to get used on proactive operations, um, on stakeouts uh, for units such as the Flying Squad, um, which... Um, for those that don't know, the Flying Squad was like the Met- Metropolitan Police's central robbery squad. They dealt with armed robberies. And back in the, in the 70s and 80s, armed robberies were a serious problem. And they were conducted, if you've seen the film Heat, they, that, they were the sort of criminals that we're dealing, we were dealing with. You know, these were predominantly white. Um, they came from families that were part of organised crime. Um, you know, we didn't have a mafia or anything like that in the United Kingdom, but, you know, they were direct descendants of, you know, the, the great train robbers and the, the, Cray, the Cray twins and the Richardsons. You know, they, these were crime families, in, mainly in southeast London, uh, uh, Rotherhithe, Peckham, uh, the east end of London as well. Um, and they would plan these robberies, you know, like military operations. Um, they'd have like three or four stolen cars laid down so whichever way they they had to go they could you know if they had to change their route they could change the car for another one um you know they would would rarely fire their weapons but they would absolutely would you know even on unarmed police officers if they if that was 
what they had to do to get away, then they absolutely would. Um, and they would, by the by the, the 1980s, they were doing what we call slaughters, where they would actually hijack the whole armoured vehicle, take it to a to a premises. It might be a, a factory where they were holding the whole occupants of the factory or the workforce hostage, all tied up. Uh, and they would drive the security van in. The roller shutters would go come down, and then they would use you know, the cutting gear from inside this factory to get in and get the money, you know, proper, proper professional criminals. Um, and so we were found ourselves dealing with them. Um, and this operation, uh, the one at, uh, at Plumstead, uh, was actually for another organisation in the police called the Regional Crime Squad. And uh, over the whole of the United Kingdom, there were um, these regional uh, crime squads where four or five police forces would get together, um, provide detectives uh, as manpower for one central squad to deal with serious armed criminality. Um, and we were working for nine regional crime squad, which was the London and South East England based um, unit. And they had information that uh, a very active robbery team, which was considerably younger than most of the, the, the other main robbery teams. These guys were in their twenties were uh, going to conduct a robbery on a wages delivery to a meatpacking factory in a place called Plumstead. Um, and it was unusual for London so far as it was in the suburbs and it was actually quite rural. So one side of the estate, or this, this factory was surrounded by woodland um, with an approach road that led out into a, um, a, a residential street. But then... There was also a route that would take you cross country across a farm track that would bring you out a quarter of a mile or half a mile away from the, the target premises through a farmyard and out onto a main road. Um, we, we were told that um, they had military grade weapons um, and that they, that they, their calling card was that unlike some of their older rival robbery teams this lot wouldn't hesitate to shoot and quite often for almost no reason at all in fact on the briefing they cited an example of, of, of one robbery recently where while they were making their getaway a painter up on some scaffolding four stories up had seen them and in a in an attempt to do something had thrown a can of paint at them uh, which had missed them but one of them shot at this painter you know, he was absolutely four stories up on scaffolding. There was no threat to them, but they'd still discharged their firearms. So they were described as hotheads, um, you know, uh, unpredictable and extremely dangerous. Um, so we carried out reconnaissance. We came together with a plan, and that plan was, as I say, we came together with a plan. The team leader came, came up with a plan whereby our team would be concealed in the back of a, a rental truck uh, with a roller, roller shutter on the back, um, and a detective who was what we call a crop officer, which means covert rural observation point. So he's, he's trained to in camouflage and concealment and, and you know, surviving in a rural observation point for periods of time. He would trigger the arrest phase by calling the attack when the, um, when the, uh, the robbers broke cover from the woods because the information was they'd be hiding in the woods overlooking the Logan Bay. So I didn't like the idea of the plan at all. I thought we were putting all our eggs in one basket. I thought we were particularly vulnerable when the roller shutter came up at the back. Um, but 
we rehearsed it. We rehearsed getting in and out. We um, made some modifications to the vehicle. We took a like a six millimeter drill bit and drilled observation holes in the side of this van at the back in the roller shutters. Uh, and then eventually, um, two detectives disguised discreet, disguised as as meat, you know, as, as butchers, you know, wearing white aprons and and that covered in blood, drove us down to the depot. They went in and sat with the manager and we sat in the back of the truck and we waited uh, and we waited and we waited and eventually the uh, observation point detected movement in the woods and identified subject one. Subject one is now met up with subject two. Um, it's a hot July day, but they're both wearing woolly hats and wearing gloves. Um, and, and then subject three's arrived. He's carrying a happy bag. That's, that was detective slang for the bag in which they're going to conceal the weapons. Um, yeah, and then now it's a total loss, loss, loss to OP1, which meant that he could no longer see them. They'd moved off into the woods and they were now out of his vision. So we waited another couple of hours and the security van just never showed up. We thought, so, of course, by this point, we've not heard anything about where the subjects are. Um, we've not heard anything about the security van. We're beginning to wonder whether anything's going to happen at all. And then eventually we get your contact contact. Uh, that's the blue box towards the plot, which meant that the security van was on its way. It was securical, which had a blue livery. Um, and then I see the van coming down the approach road towards the loading bay. And then the van manoeuvres and reverses into the loading bay. And I lose sight of it behind a parked um, refrigerated truck. But as soon as it starts to manoeuvre, I see a stolen getaway car. That we've, that's been reported on the net, also start to carry out a manoeuvre so that it's facing the direction it came in. And I sort of looked briefly at my colleagues and I gave them the thumbs up. And uh, by this point, we're all standing. We've all moved up into a standing position very, very quietly. Um, and our weapons are all out, ready. I've got a 9mm Browning pistol and I'm carrying a shield because on the briefing, when I complained about the plan, I kind of talked myself into being the cover man that would cover the team as they deployed from the back of the van. And that's a standard military tactic um, and a standard police tactic, really, cover movement. You know, whenever you move, somebody should be static, providing cover and fire if necessary. So that was my role. But as I looked back towards the spy hole, I suddenly saw this blur of movement from right to left, from the woods towards the loading bay uh, of, a, of a khaki coloured khaki coloured jacket just streak past literally half a second's move, worth of movement and I looked to my right my colleagues were also looking through the holes and they clearly hadn't seen it so I said to the team leader who had his hand on the paracord that was on the, the, the hasp of the lock to pull up the roller shutters I went go and he just looked at me and I went fucking go and he went what I went go 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 and he pulled the roller shutter up. Roller shutters were horrendously noisy. And there was just this bare expanse of concrete. There was nothing to see but the getaway car um, facing out the way it had come with its engine running and nothing else. And I looked briefly at my colleagues who were just looking at me dumbfounded as if to say, what the fuck have you done, Tom? Uh, and I thought, sorry, no one else knows what's going on here. So I just jumped out the back of the truck. This ballistic shield... Uh, Golden rule, never try, never go out on an operation with a piece of equipment that you've never trained with. And we'd broken that golden rule 
because we'd only just taken delivery of this ballistic shield. And I hadn't anticipated that I would be jumping out the back of the truck with it. I anticipated that I'd be standing static and covering them. And as soon as I hit the ground, the weight of the shield starts to drag me towards the earth. Uh, and I stumbled and I somehow managed to stop myself falling. And as I came around the corner of the refrigerated truck, I see the three armed robbers with you know, two of them with their backs to me. Um, first one, the nearest one was a guy called Nicky, uh, Nicky Flynn. Uh, he had a balaclava on, but I could only see the back of his head. Um, but I could see he had a, a six inch barrel stainless steel uh, revolver and he was holding it vertically with a barrel upwards. Uh, and I could see that over his right shoulder. And he was trying to peer into the back of the truck through a grilled window just behind the driver's uh, door. And then at the other end of the truck, at the back end of the truck, by the chute where the money would come out, there was a guy called Nicky Payne. And he had what I thought was probably an assault rifle, but it turned out to be, because I could only see the muzzle of it, it turned out to be a Spaz 12 shotgun made by Franchi. He also had a balaclava on. He was banging his, the elbow of his firing hand against the side of the truck and was shouting at the occupants in the, in the back of the, the, uh, the van to put the money down the chute. And he was pointing the muzzle of his gun at the security guard, who was a 50-odd-year-old man standing there, absolutely terrified. The eyes were like dinner plates, and he's just staring at me. And also staring at me through the eyes of his balaclava was a guy uh, called Derek Whitelock. And he also had a, a sawn-off shotgun. He had a sawn-off Browning automatic shotgun, and he was forcing the muzzle of that shotgun into the chin of the security guard. Anyway... Um, I don't know who it was that started shouting armed police, but up to that point, it was like a video that was on, on pause. And uh, as, uh, as soon as someone started shouting armed police, we all started sh shouting armed police. And whoever it was that had their finger on the button pressed play and everything started to move. Um, Mickey Flynn started to turn towards me. And one minute I was looking at the back of his head, the next minute I was looking at the red trim around the uh, around his eyes on the balaclava uh, and pain started to turn as well and i realized that you know if it had been one suspect that i could have probably given them a fraction of a second longer and, and perhaps they may have surrendered but i didn't i didn't have that luxury so i just opened fire i fired a, a pair of shots at flynn uh, and a pair of shots at pain i never saw them fall because i was traversing onto the next target which was uh Derek whitelock um and I fired one shot at Derek Whitelock. I was going to fire two, but I had to stop myself because by that point, Whitelock had started to move and he was starting to move behind the guard. And so it was, he was a diminishing target. If I'd have fired my second shot, I would have probably hit the security guard. Um, and he ran around the back of the truck and I immediately set off around the front of the truck to head him off at the pass. And uh, two of my colleagues had chased the security, sorry, chased the, the getaway car which had sped off as soon as we jumped out the back of the truck. Um, and they had given up on chasing, the, chasing that. And they turned, and so they had they brought both of their shotguns, they were armed with Remington shotguns, to bear on Whitelock, who was now showing his hands out the back of the truck. And, and I'm, I'm looking down the side of the truck. So we're all shouting at him. We're talking down to the ground, um, and I go up and I put cuffs on him took his balaclava off of him and he's saying something to me. He's moaning about something, but I'm not really taking in what it is that he's saying. Um, and then I realized that aside from covering my job, because I was only armed with a pistol, 
was once we got the suspects down on the ground and they'd surrendered, my job was to secure them with plastic uh, cable ties, plastic cuffs. So I went round the side of the the, the other side um, where um, Payne and Flynn were on the ground, and my colleagues had already started to administer first aid. Um, but you could tell pretty much straight away that, uh, that they were either dead or they were they were imminently about to die. Um, there was a lot of blood, uh, and uh, and I and I didn't see any guns, and I knew they'd had guns. But I just didn't see any guns next to the body. And I suppose my brain expected the guns to be in close proximity to them. And so I, I walk back around the other side and I'm actually starting to doubt myself now. You know, my brain is playing tricks with me and I'm, I'm having this conversation with myself, you know. And so I, a bit like a bit like at, at um, Northolt, where I, I, I thought you've got to grab this little girl and get her out of here just to keep yourself busy so that you don't look at the, the dead bodies, you know. Um, I, I went straight back to Whitelock and I hoied him up off the ground and I slammed him up against the side of the van and started to search him. And he's still moaning to me. Uh, and I think I told him to shut the fuck up um, and started to search him, at which point um, one of my colleagues come running around the corner, enthusiastic little Welsh guy. And he was like, oh, brilliant shooting, Tony, brilliant shooting. And I said, never mind that. I said, what guns do they have? He went, Oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll go and find out. So he disappeared back round to the other side of the van. And I remember putting my head up against the side of the van because uh, it was a hot day. And I remember the cool of the, the steel against my forehead. And I had my eyes closed and I just took a deep breath. Whitelock is still saying something to me. I'm not really listening to what it is that he's saying. And when I opened my eyes and I looked down, between my feet was the muzzle of the sawn-off shotgun uh, that Whitelock had had. And clearly what he'd done is as he'd gone around the back of the van, he thought to himself, I need to get rid of this bullet magnet because, I, you know, I'm getting shot at. So he'd thrown it underneath the van. It obviously skidded under the van and it ended up coming out the other side of the van. And so immediately there was a wave of relief that, that there was at least one gun. Uh, and then uh, Taff, the little Welsh guy, comes running back around the side again and he says, oh, you've got a Franchi Spaz and a... And a Smith and Wesson Magnum, and straight away, I, I, it was like all of the tension just flowed out of my body because I realised that I that I'd done exactly what I was trained to do, and, I, and you know I hadn't made a mistake, and uh, I hadn't you know how I how I'd missed the guns, I don't know, but we had two dog handlers with us, and as soon as my colleagues approached the team, they sort of kicked the guns out of the hands of the suspects and secured them with plastic cuffs, and then told the told the the, um, the dog handlers to move the guns away, so they'd moved the guns about ten yards away from the guys, from the from the, the suspects, and I must have literally, virtually stepped over them when I went round to have a look. But my brain just hadn't registered them, or hadn't hadn't seen them. So I said to um, I said to Whitelock, what, what, "What are you moaning about, mate?" And he went, oh, "I think you've shot me." <laughs> so um, I I pulled up his uh, his top, and. Uh, Sure enough, he had a a uh, gunshot wound, nine millimeter gunshot wound uh, to his left side, left side, no right side, to his right side, and um, he was uh, it was bubbling, so it obviously punctured his lung. So we got him down on the ground and um, and put a seal on it, and uh, 
elevated his legs in the air and called the ambulance. And actually, as think you know, things progressed. This was also another bit of a first because it was the very first operation where we had decided to have ambulances on standby. This was 1987, and round about the end of 86, 87, the London Ambulance Service had started to move from just being a taxi service for injured people to actually giving um, proper formalised advanced medic training. So they had India ambulances, which were intubation, and they had Romeo ambulances, which were resuscitation. It was either one or the other <laughs> at the time. But shortly after that, they, they started training full-blown paramedics. But what it meant was um, two of the subjects died, Whitelock survived. But when it came to the public inquest into the, into the shooting, um, we got a lot of kudos for the fact that we had built into a plan as a contingency to have immediate first aid available on the scene. So that was a, that was a learning curve for us. And from that point on, we never did a live operation other than long-term surveillance operations without having an ambulance on standby. That's yeah. brilliant. Now, well, Lessons what, learned. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's that, it's that progression, like you said. I mean, some things you just no way, no way of knowing that, you know, a situation is going to happen, especially if, as you mentioned, the ambulance role was, was metamorphosizing itself and they were, they were becoming higher trained. Yeah. But, but, you know, I think well, those... I mean, when, when, when we first started going out, and I'm sure it's, I'm sure it's probably, um, perhaps not so much now, uh, but certainly it was the case then that, you know, we were, we were supposed to be the, you know, the SWAT team, but I would go out. I always went out with two shell dressings minimum, but we didn't have tourniquets because they were forbidden tourniquets. You know, you're probably familiar with a thing like, you know, tourniquets have come in and out of fashion on the, the medical scene for years, depending on what conflicts have been about. I and mean, now they're massively back in favor because of lessons learned in Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah. And I suspect that they will continue to be a massive part of a, of um, you know paramedics kit and SWAT guys kit, but back then you know they were an absolute no no, um, and uh, but always always had at least two shell dressings. I had a, 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 um, a an airway, probably know how to use it, but I'd have had a good stab at it, uh, you know, <laughs> because gunshot wounds go in and they go out, so you've got to have two. But but a good percentage of the guys that went out never had never carried any first aid. It never really occurred to them. And to me, that's a massive, that, that is, goes back again to exactly what we were talking about, about being prepared. And you go, what do you mean you, you haven't got first aid on you? How can you not, how can you go out on an armed operation with a gun against people? You wouldn't be there unless the intelligence was that they had guns and think that it's going to end without the possible need for you to, to have first aid gear. How can you even... You know, where is your mind if that's what you believe? But people were doing it, you know, in that era. Yeah. Well, even even myself as a, as a gun carrier, I also have a tourniquet that goes everywhere that gun does. And I have a yeah. resource mask and, you know, some other things in my car. Because, again, you you don't stop being a rescuer just because you clock out your station or your police station. We used, we used to look massively towards the States for operational experience because, you know, we don't have much gun crime in the U.K., um, and, you know, as far as I was concerned, all the experience, like I said to you, you know, learning about post-incident procedures from the FBI HRT guys that were visiting London, you know, that was, you know, I was always, you know, trying to pick up stuff. And um, round about the period of, 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 uh, of this, and 87, I think it was in, in 86, 
there was that massive FBI shootout in um, South Florida, in Broward County, where you know two detectives, uh, Groban and Dove, uh, were killed, um, and loads of others were seriously injured. You know, life-changing injuries. Uh, the two suspects were eventually killed, but you know, one suspect in particular did most of the damage, having received a non-survivable gunshot wound in the in the you know the opening moments of that contact um and you know when you listen to the fbi debrief i was listening to it and i'm thinking you were in condition white you went out on that operation you know your body armor was in the trunk of your vehicles you had shotguns but they were in the trunks of your vehicles one of you has gone out with just a two inch five shot smith and wesson revolver in an ankle holster you didn't think you were gonna you thought this was a, a you know a cold trail you thought you were just going to go and sit out on a stakeout for you know four miles of the dixie highway and the likelihood of these robbers turning up was minimal and you'd been there an hour and all of a sudden one of the subject one of the police vehicles goes we're behind it we're following them and the next thing you know you're in a war zone and you weren't mentally prepared for it and you know to me i would learn from stuff like that and say to everyone on my team you, you know you're, you're carrying field dressings at the bare, bare minimum you know, we need to get a med pack that we have with us in one of the vehicles minimum all the time. You know, when we go to the front door of a house, you know, it might not come in with us. It might stay at the front door, but you have a med pack, you know, a full med pack at the front door. And it was that, it was just that best practice that came about from a lot of its imagination. You know, a lot, I think a lot of police officers, and I'm sure it's the same for paramedics and, and fire brigade and everything else. They, 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 they take in what they're given in training but they don't have the imagination to live it. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes perfect sense. I'm just thinking about, you know, some instance I've been on, you know, where, um, yeah, for example, the fire alarm. Oh, this is going to be bullshit. You know, they walk in, no gear or anything, and then you get there and there's a fire and everyone's scrambling like, you know, chickens with their head cut off. Or, you know, a medical side. I've, I've had it. And I, and I, like you said, I would always use my imagination to be like, what's the worst case? And I'm not saying, again, I'm not masquerading as perfect, but. No, but it's like you said, if you carry a tourniquet, you, you, you undoubtedly, because we're like-minded, have thought, well, where do I need to carry that tourniquet? Because if I'm injured on my right arm, there's no point having it on my on my on my right side because that i'm going to need to be able to reach it with my left hand and it's do you know what i mean it sounds really basic stuff and it sounds so obvious but you know i see people that i look at their kit and you know these are these are operators these are guys that go and you go what way was your brain thinking when you thought out to, to put that that magazine there or that knife there or you know it sometimes i just you know i, I do kind of despair a little bit and it's just, it's just human nature, I guess. I guess if you had a whole team made up of Tony Longs, it would be a nightmare. <laughs> uh, you know, you need some followers, you need some doers, and you need some people with lots of imagination, and you need some people that, that bring everybody down to earth. You know what I mean? It's got to be a blend. Yeah. But, well, I think the common denominator as well is humility. Like having the humility to go, yes. to recognize your own mistakes and go, if this had gone a different way, I might have killed that patient. I might have died myself. I, you know, whatever it was, and understanding that you learn from your own near misses, you learn from other people's, you know, deaths or near misses, whatever it is, and so that you yeah. can create this catalog. Because as as you said, prior to that that massacre you you had with the survivalist, 
you hadn't seen a huge amount. So, you know, a lot of us work in departments where, you know, we're not pulling people out of fires every day. We're not, we're not responding to mass shootings every day. So we have to lean into other people's stories and have the humility to not say, oh, it'll never happen here, but the opposite. What if it happened here? What would we do? Well, well here's, and also how, how you train for that. So here's a good example. Um, I've done loads of mass casualties, mass shooting type training exercises, uh, you know, um, after 9-11 in particular, you know, we started doing these mass exercises where we take over a shopping mall or, a, you know, an underground station and we'd have loads of extras and all the rest of it. And you can guarantee that as you came in, they'd all be running towards you shouting, he's got a gun, he's got a gun, you know, and you just, you just be, have this overwhelming, you know, wall of people and noise coming towards you and shouting. Because those that set up the exercise thought, well, that's, that's what that's what will happen. And then I heard a briefing from a guy in Nebraska. He was a SWAT team sergeant, um, but a patrol sergeant as well. And he'd arrived as the third on scene at a shooting in a shopping mall at Christmas time. And as per their policy, he got together with, I think, a dog handler and another patrol guy um, and made an entry. Just the three of them. Yeah. To, and they went in, he said, and there was no screaming. He said all there was was a dead guy, a dead 60-year-old guy in a huge, huge puddle of blood. It looked like every bit of his blood had drained out of his body. Spent AK casings, an absolute silence except for Christmas carols coming over the tannoy. He said, and we went through that building, and he said, we found about 50 people before we found the, the, the perpetrator who killed himself. He said, and we had to hunt for every one of them. No one came running out with their hands up saying, help me, help me. Everyone hid. Sure, there had have been people that, that ran straight out the exits when it happened. But even by the time the first responders had arrived, everyone else in that shopping mall had pulled clothes racks over themselves and the kids. Or they'd, they'd gone through the fire door and, and, and hidden in the, the staff canteen. You know? But it wasn't anything like the training exercises that they'd done because actually the people designing the training exercises hadn't put themselves in the position of real people when they were planning it. Yeah, that's, that's so interesting. It reminds me of, um, I had the two French brothers that, uh, made the documentary nine 11. They also did a Netflix special on the Paris attacks. And when yeah. you hear the, the French people that were at the Bataclan, you know, it was only three terrorists and there were hundreds of people in the backland, but they had the fight, flight, or freeze, and so many of them froze. So it was it was a, a mountain of bodies. It wasn't people fleeing. There were some hidden in void spaces in the ceilings, some being held by the terrorists. But just like you said, it was it was a far cry from what you described as far as people fleeing. Yeah, it's like kids messing around, isn't it? One of them throws a throws a, a, a banger or bursts a balloon or something. Everybody runs, but there's always one kid that thinks he's invisible. <laughs> the fat kid that doesn't run he just stands there and really goes, still. <laughs> right well then so before we get to the you know the 2005 shooting um how was the the post-incident um kind of reaction for the second shooting versus the first right well it, it was crazy different crazy different so Obviously, on the first occasion, I hadn't killed anyone. Uh, the second occasion, and he didn't complain. He thought that I did the right thing. That's what he wanted me to do. 
on the second occasion I'd, I'd shot three people and two of them were dead um and um but armed robbery had been a huge problem in london and you know they, the police had taken some criticism for not doing something about it and then all of a sudden here we were where we shot two armed robbers killing them and arrested the third um and the press were massively on side all three suspects were white so there was no controversy about sort of race or anything like that which there probably would have been had the subjects um you know been from a, another race um and so from that point of view everything was good um between 85 and 87 something quite substantial had happened in the metropolitan police and that is that they'd actually got ahead of the game um and someone somewhere um, had convinced the commissioner that we should have a welfare branch that actually did something the met police had always had a welfare branch but it just basically consisted of a load of money in a cupboard and the only person that had the key for it was the commissioner um and if you knew about the money in the cupboard and you know you you knew that the detective sergeant in your office was you know had been diagnosed with cancer if you were lucky you might get some money for him and his wife to go on the long weekend somewhere and that was about it but there was no there was nothing else you know and if you got involved in something serious everything was dealt with by a bottle of scotch you know you went in and saw the detective inspector and he went yeah come in sit down go on have a, you know have a drink you know get it off your chest sort of thing that was it um but uh, a guy called ken richardson who was a retired superintendent um had been recruited i think i think when he was serving he had a bee in his bonnet about the lack of support for police officers when they found themselves in distressing situations um and he had been recruited as the civilian lead for a new department based at scotland yard around the corner from scotland yard um that would deal with welfare um and they'd taken some civil staff they'd sent them away to do counseling courses uh, they had a new suite of offices which had all been done out with really nice furniture and you know nice pictures on the wall and everything so it looked as little like a, a police building as possible um and my wife and i got sent up there to speak to them i was very much against it i thought it was a stigma um but i got told no that's the whole point anyone involved in shooting from now on is going to go along and see these guys so there'll be no stigma attached it'll be a policy we're going to call it post incident procedure that's what you're going to do so i was the guinea pig so this guy ken richardson um he interviewed me um and he's like you know this is different this time tony you know you know you've been involved in shooting before but this time two people are dead you must feel really bad about it and you know and i went well no not really and he said well what do you mean and i said well on the last occasion i said um you know i, I had to shoot the suspect because he was stabbing the little girl but i fired three shots at close range and i only really got one good center mass hit so from a purely professional point of view i, I feel that i let myself down i said on this occasion i said i've holding a ballistic shield and shooting a pistol one-handed and I shot you know five shots at three suspects and I got five good center mass hits so at which point my wife kicked me in the shins under the coffee table <laughs> uh, and and Ken goes oh, you can't mean that and I was like I, I realized that perhaps I should you know tailor the conversation to the audience so i said well no obviously not really but you know I, I, you know i think that i did what i was supposed to do and da, 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 da. so um anyway cut a long story short um he said oh i think you're um, i understand you're on holiday next week or leave next week uh, and that, that's good get away from it 
and my wife, who was much more shrewd, shrewd than me, uh, may she rest in peace, bless her, said, um, uh, well, I'm not happy about it because we're only going to go and stay with his dad. We can't afford a proper holiday. And his dad's very proud of what Tony does and he's just going to keep wanting to talk about it. So Ken goes, well, quite right. You need a proper holiday, somewhere like Spain or Portugal. So I thought, well, that sounds good. I wasn't expecting this. And my wife goes, Los Angeles. And Ken goes, why Los Angeles? And Tony's got a friend in Los Angeles who said he put us up. <laughs> and uh, I'm thinking, who the hell do I know in Los Angeles? And then I realized what it was she was talking about. A couple of months earlier, I'd looked after an American visitor um, who'd been shown around a police station where we had a firing range. And when he heard there was a firing range there, knowing that British police didn't have guns, he was fascinated. So he got left with me to give him a bit of a brief. And uh, I took him in the police canteen and we had lunch. And he gave me his, he took my details. I, I offered to take him and his wife out for a meal, but they were actually traveling home that evening. And a couple of weeks later, I got a phone call saying, hey, if you're ever in Los Angeles, you know, we've got a, we've got a, you know, a guest house, come and stay with us. So we, we ended up, you know, turning up on this guy's doorstep with a like, thousand pounds spending money <laughs> for like four weeks in, in uh, the States. Um, and uh, I just made loads of contacts out there. Uh, I ended up, I won't bore you with how I ended up there, but I ended up in Salt Lake City, of all places, drove all the way up there via Vegas, um, where I was looked after by someone up there who put on a SWAT barbecue and all the SWAT guys from the whole region came along and shook my hand and bought me a beer and all the rest of it. Um, and then I ended up, as a direct result of that, being invited to go back the following year to run some SWAT training. And then every year after that for, for nearly two decades, I'd go back and I'd run, I'd run SWAT training either there or in Florida or elsewhere in the States. And then I'd take back, you know, what I picked up in the, in the States um, and uh, it was a bit like taking Coles to Newcastle. But actually, I think even though, I think you had to win the audience over because a lot of them would be thinking, well, you're Brits, what do you know about guns? Um, but once they realized that our, our SWAT setup is in many respects more professional than theirs because we have like a full-time SWAT team, we don't have, you know, guys doing patrol work or detectives who then do SWAT part-time. Uh, because we had good budgets and good training facilities, um, you know, we kind of won them round and hopefully they learned some stuff. But it's definitely a two-way street. Yeah, well, it's humility again. <laughs> like I said, with with the ridiculing of the uh, European helmets, you know, if, if we all just take a step back and learn from each other and, and pick from who's doing it the best, you know, that would work in our system, then all the countries are going to improve. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, in answer to your question, um, that kind of opened the floodgates because um, the department had got much bigger quite quickly, around about 1987, in point of fact. We'd introduced a load of guys who were non-instructors who had been selected for the first time on their physical fitness and their, their, um, their operational ability rather than their instructional ability. Uh, and a couple of years after that, we became full-time full -time teams where we, we were a mixture of instructors and non-instructors. By that time, we were doing something in the region of like 400 operations a year. Um, you know, everybody was really experienced and we were getting, you know, into a lot of shootings. If, you do, if you're doing the lion's share of armed operations, 
you know, if you go out hunt, looking for loads of tigers, eventually you're going to find a couple. And, uh, and that's what happened. So, um, yeah, lots of people. I think actually about a month or so after my shooting that resulted in my trip to America, there was a, a similar shootout with a, with a robbery team. Only it was a two-way range this time. One of our guys got hit. And um, about six guys all opened fire. And I think they fired a total of about 16 rounds and they all turned up at the welfare branch wearing Hawaiian shirts with their passports <laughs> and got told to Foxtrot Oscar, got told, got told to Foxtrot Oscar. So they didn't, they didn't get a holiday. I, I'd, uh, I'd killed the golden goose. <laughs> they didn't go to LA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they didn't get to LA. No. They got, well, they did. They went to Little Hampton. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. All right. Well then, you know, again, a large amount of time passes. You're getting close to retirement. So tell me about April 30 and then kind of lead us through, you know, not retiring. Okay, so, so yeah, so I, I joined August two, uh, 1975, so I'm due to re retire on the 11th of August 2005. Um, the department's changed beyond all recognition. It still has a training role, uh, but we've got a state-of-the-art training facility. We've got armed response vehicles. Instead of there were 40 guys when I joined the unit, there's now something like 800 guys in the unit. Um, putting out armed response vehicles all over London 24 hours a day. Uh, it's a much, much different animal to, to the one that I joined. Uh, and I'm 100 days from retirement. Uh, it's the last day of uh, April. Um, and we go out on the second day of um, an operation um, against a team of uh, predominantly uh, Afro-Caribbean gangsters really uh, part of an organized crime group um, and the intelligence is that they've got access to mac-10 submachine guns and that they're going to visit some colombian drug dealers in northwest london on the pretext of buying some cocaine but they are in fact going to uh, torture them kill them and steal all their drugs that's the intelligence so day one, I'm the drive. We go out, but by this time, we've developed a tactic which we call MAST. MAST stands for Mobile Armed Surveillance Tactics, basically. Uh, and it involves a surveillance team. Um, and without giving anything away, that might be a substantial amount of vehicles, including motorbikes and taxis and God knows what else. Um, probably something in the region of a 12-man team or 12-person team. A substantial quantity of the surveillance team will be females and we let them do their magic you know we let them that's their expertise we we let them follow them on foot and in vehicles and we will stay in a four vehicle convoy just far enough back so that our communications are good we can hear what they're saying on the radio but we're close enough to respond if they suddenly compromise that they find themselves in danger and also if we um get in information if the information that they're sending back to us starts to develop a picture whereby the gold commander who's in our control vehicle decides that there's a sufficiency of evidence to warrant arrest we then go into what's known as a, um, a traffic light system so if the surveillance team are following the suspects and everything's going fine we're in state green if the team the 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 officer commanding it, the gold commander, decides that he wants the suspects arrested, we go to state amber. And what state amber means is the surveillance team start looking in their rearview mirrors because we're going to be finding our way through the teams, through the surveillance team, working our way up to the, to the front until we're immediately behind the suspect, at which point we will declare state red. And state red means that uh, an ambush on the vehicle is imminent. 
And then when the lead vehicle of our vehicles, all the surveillance are now taken up the rear. Uh, when we uh, decide that a vehicle intervention is appropriate, the lead vehicle will do an overtake, apply its brakes abruptly. The following vehicle will come up alongside and the rear vehicle will block it. And we basically gunport the vehicle, swarm it. It's quite aggressive. Um, you smash the windows. If you think that the, there's sufficient to, uh, to warrant doing it, we'll use uh, shotgun breaching rounds to blow the tyres. Um, the suspect will get dragged out of the vehicles, cuffed up, and then handed over to the detectives. It's called a hard stop, and that it's kind of sort of routine for that type of operation. The streets of London um, don't lend themselves to compliant vehicle stops. You know, it is a tactic. You can do it, but we're all in unmarked vehicles. We're we're all you know in plain clothes. Um, and we rely very heavily on the element of surprise. So day one, I'm driving the Bravo car, which is the second car in our convoy, um, and uh, nothing happens. We're on duty for 12 hours, 13 hours, something like that, and then we get told the intelligence suggests that the, um, the bad guys aren't going to meet with the Colombians tonight, but they're going to get back in touch with them first thing tomorrow morning. They haven't been able to get the guns they wanted. They've told the Colombians that they're struggling to get the money together, but they'll have it by tomorrow. So we all go home to bed for a few hours sleep, come back in at 0600, quick tactical team briefing. We've got some new guys on the team um, because it's a weekend. It's now a Saturday and uh, some of our team have taken weekend leave. So we have to do a rebrief for them. We go out, but I'm in the same car with the same one of the guys in my crew is the same, but he is now driving and I'm the front seat passenger. And we've got a guy from another team, uh, ex-Royal Marine, um, Steve, in the back seat. So again, um, we, we, we get told the intelligence picture lends, lends us to believe that it's going to all be starting in a certain part of southwest London. So we go down to this, this particular geographical location. We go to the local police station and we hold up in the station yard where we're free to move around, uh, you know, and relax. And we're just listening to the surveillance communications. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Several hours go by, and then we get, yeah, we've got subject one. Um, he's gone into the cafe. Uh, they'd obviously had some intelligence that there was going to be a meet in a cafe. And as yeah, we've got subject two now. Yeah, uh, they're talking. Half an hour later, yeah, they're out of the cafe. They're into a, a silver VW Golf, index number so and so. And they're off, off. So they're followed. We're all in our vehicles now. We're all listening to the radios. It goes to an address locally. Um, they come out of the address carrying a bag. And we're then fed the information that uh, they've got at least one of the guns. Uh, and they're on their way to another part of North London to collect another gun. Um, and they're talking about Big Macs. Obviously, criminals, when they talk on telephones, uh, or talk to each other. They talk in guarded speech. They're not going to talk in clear speech. And so the conclusion was uh, that they were they were going to go and get Mac-10 submachine guns because there was a lot of problems with Mac-10. Um, so we followed them to Harlesden. Uh, we then get told, uh, we listen to the communications and we get told, yes, they've met up with a third person in a side street. He's handed a bag over to them. They've now gone back to the VW Golf. Uh, they're in the VDOT and they're off. So the surveillance team are behind them. We're still at State Green at this stage. Um, so we're following up behind. Um, the roads in that particular part of London don't lend themselves to 
gaining gaining ground. You know, you can't overtake um, the different single carriage roads, side streets, back doubles. Eventually, we get down onto a piece of fast road, and we get given um, in fact it's the A1, which is the main road lane leading out of London uh, to the northwest, um, and uh, we get given state state amber. So we start overtaking the surveillance team. Um, and we they turn off the main road into a into a quite into a quieter road, but it's I say quieter. It's a busy shopping road, it's not a fast road, but it's a shopping centre. So there's lots of pedestrian traffic, lots of cars, um, and we're now nearly at the very front. Um, and eventually, we manage the, the last surveillance vehicles pull over and let us up to the front, and we get given state red. So we're at state red. We're waiting for the correct opportunity to stop this vehicle. Um, the lead vehicle, which has got the best situational awareness, um, the team, the, the leader in the front seat of that car, the, the vehicle commander, uh, gives uh, attack, 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 which is the code to put in the block. They do an overtake. Um, we block it. And to, to my mind, even now thinking back on it, it was like a textbook stop. I pulled up alongside, but as I'm pulling alongside, I'm aware that the guy in the rear seat, it turns out to be a guy called Azel Rodney, um, He's, he looks like he's on tender hooks. And I'm actually convinced at this stage, before the vehicle comes to rest, that we're burnt, that, that all the occupants of the vehicle are aware that police are, are behind them and that Azel Rodney in particular, uh, because we'd seen the bags that, that we believe the guns to be in, were put in the back of his vehicle. And it was a hot day and he'd been seen before they moved off to put on a coat, a long coat. So... You know, we're all thinking, why does he need a long coat? Probably to hide a hide a something the bulky as a Mac 10. All the weapons were on the back of the vehicle with him. So my eyes are locked onto Azel Rodney. I'm convinced that he is aware that we're behind him. He's just acting really unnaturally. And he looks over his left shoulder, he looks over his right shoulder, and then he ducks down across the back seat, by which point I'm alongside him. Um, and suddenly he springs back up again. Um, and it was to me, it was a totally unnatural movement. You know, if if you're going to lie down across the back seat and try and hide, then that's one thing. But to suddenly duck down and then suddenly spring up again, but I can't see his hands because his hands are below the level of the door. By this point, the vehicle's stationary. It's rammed into the, the into our Alpha vehicle. I've pulled alongside in the Bravo vehicle. The Charlie car behind has rear shunted it as well. So we've got a two vehicle, a three vehicle collision here with me alongside it. Um, and my colleagues are starting to leave the vehicle and they're shouting, armed police, they've got the weapons raised. Um, and as El Rodney's shoulders are hunched and he's looking towards the, the left hand side of the vehicle. So he's sort of, he's turned away from me. And at that point, I thought, I can't wait any longer. You know, I genuinely believe as a result of the intelligence that he's in possession of a Mac 10 submachine gun that can fire over a thousand rounds a minute, um, can empty a 32 round magazine in half a second. Um, I need to fire. Uh, you know, I, might, I may never see a gun before he opens fire. So I made the decision to fire. Uh, and I fired um, and the window shattered. Um, and so the window kind of went milky and, and then a section of the window fell out. And I continued to fire. Um, and I lost sight of him briefly. I thought it was because my vehicle had moved forward. 
it turned out not to be the case. But anyway, I just pushed myself back in the seat. I could still see him. So I carried on shooting until eventually he's, he seemed to slump towards me across the back seat and out of my view. So I then had nothing to shoot at. So I debussed because I was nearest to the passenger. So I debussed across the driver's seat to get away from the threat, moved down the side of the vehicle, came around behind the vehicle, um, tried to look in through the back window of the, of, the, uh, of the VW Golf, but I couldn't see anything. So I smashed the window with the muzzle of my, my weapon, which was a Heckler & Koch G36 uh, 5.56 carbine. Um, smashed the window, but couldn't see in, couldn't That didn't really aid my situational awareness at all. So I went round to the, the, the passenger side of the car where I was joined by a colleague from the Alpha car. And he looks at me and I look at him um, and he gives me a nod, reaches forward, opens the door, and I, I cover. Uh, into the back of the vehicle and I just see a Zell Rodney slumped down across the back seat can't really see that much my mate reaches in grabs him by the scruff of the neck sort of pulls him up into a sitting position at which point his head slumped towards the the outside of the car and I saw grey matter and blood and uh, a lot of that sprayed over my colleague he looks at me as if to say was that you? Uh, and I kind of nodded. Um, again, you know, it was very much like my first two shootings. I just had an overwhelming urge to make myself busy, uh, not look at what I'd done, but just move away from that and do something useful somewhere else in the scene. So I went back round to my car and realised that our vehicle was blocking the driver's door. Um, and so my my driver, Smudge, uh, and a, a guy, the driver from the Alpha car, were trying to deal with the driver of the Bandit car. So I, at their request, I backed the car up, and they were then able to deal with him. Um, and then I basically applied the safety on my carbine, left it on the front seat, and I said to Smudge, mate, my carbine's on the front seat. And then I sort of did a sort of Michael Jackson moonwalk out of it, basically. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, caught the attention of my team leader he came over and, and as if to say what, what are you, why aren't you doing something <laughs> and uh, and he said like, what happened and I told him I sort of shot him and he said what gun did he have I said I didn't see a gun so he immediately looked very worried and I said he's got a gun I guarantee you there's a gun in that vehicle um, everything about his body language told me that he picked up a gun was about to fire it I just couldn't give him the, I couldn't give him the chance to do that so he told me to go and sit in the control vehicle, which I did. Um, a matter of minutes later, the goal commander came up and asked me if I was all right, what I'd seen, so I told him as well. And then two of the lads came up to me and said, and it was very much like the Welsh lad sticking his head around the corner at, at, at uh, the abattoir and telling me he found the Spaz and the, and the, the Smith & Wesson. He said, there's a there's a 45 auto on the back seat. Well, there's a, there's, you know, he didn't know it was 45 auto. He said, there's a, a self-loading pistol, semi-water pistol on the back seat and I just again it was like I said it was exactly like the abattoir I said it just like all the stress just drained out of me and I, I found myself grinning you know when you, you know, and I'm thinking I shouldn't be grinning because that's totally inappropriate but I just almost couldn't stop myself because I just knew that I'd made the right decision um and uh yeah we we had to remain at the scene for quite some time um handing it over to 
the detectives or the uniform people had to seal the crime scene because that's what it is at that point. And eventually, because I was in the control vehicle with the team leader, I was the last vehicle to leave the scene. So I think we probably left the scene about an hour and a half, possibly two hours after I fired my shots. And literally, as soon as the wheels started moving, I fell asleep, sound asleep. Didn't wait until we got back to our base, which is on the other side of London. So a good hours, well, a good 40 minutes, five minutes journey. Um, by which time it's now late evening. We've got to do all of our statements and all the rest of it. So it wasn't until the wee hours of the morning that I eventually drove home. I was offered a lift. Um, I spoke to the post-incident manager. Um, I've been told by this point by my team leader that a guy in the, in the uh, Delta car, because we had an extra car with us, had videoed the whole thing. So this was before the days of body-worn videos. And, uh, you know, I know from use of videos and training and everything that quite often what an individual remembers isn't going to be exactly what a video camera remembers. So that caused me some concern, but I knew from a moral standpoint, you know, that I'd done the right thing. Um, so anyway, I got home, my head hit the pillow, I went straight to sleep and I woke up the following morning next to my girlfriend at the time. And, um, I'm thinking there's something I've got to tell her. What is it I've got to tell her? Something's happened that's important. What the hell is it? And I, I actually had to have a word with myself because I'd pushed it so far into the back of my mind, I'd forgotten I'd been involved in shooting. I thought it was just like a bad dream. So I woke her up and I said, look, there's something important I've got to tell you. And we weren't in a good place in the relationship at the time anyway. Um, so she immediately concluded that I was going to tell her that I wanted to, wanted to split up. Uh, but I told her the truth. I told her what had happened. And uh, and that was it, really. Um, we get 48 hours. They give us 48 hours, or they did then, between the incident and committing pen to paper for a full statement. So you take a duty statement, which is basically um, on day date time price as a result of information, as a result of what I saw. I believe my close lives were in danger and, I, and I, I shot an individual in the backseat of the vehicle. That's it. Um, but then 48 hours later, you have to sit down with your lawyer and write a proper detailed statement, you know, everything from day one and what didn't happen and what did happen right the way through to the final bits. So that was all, all done. Um, I was then suspended from operations because that was the policy, uh, policy that had, had come about in the late 80s as a result probably of my, my shooting and, and, and a couple of subsequent shootings, it was decided that you can't just go straight back onto operations again. You're going to have to wait until the result of the investigation. So I was suspended through my retirement date. I've been recruited to work for the Foreign Office, so I lost that job. Eventually, the we, we have a thing called the, it's called the IOPC now, but at the time it was called the IPCC, which is the Independent Police Complaints Commission. And they are non-police investigators who investigate uh, serious situations involving the police where it's felt that it's inappropriate for the police to investigate themselves. Um, so I was investigating from them from the day of the shooting. So that was the 31st of April round to mid-November at which point they published a report where they said that they believed that I'd acted uh, correctly 
and in accordance with my training in the law and that uh, they were recommending that there would be no prosecution. Um, but they were then submitting the papers to the Crown Prosecution Service, which is like your DA's office, for them to decide whether or not there should be a prosecution. So I then waited around till April the following year, so almost, almost to the day, a year from the shooting, uh, before eventually I heard that I wouldn't be prosecuted. Um, but I've been back on operations for about six months by that time. I've been recruited to work with uh, doing a quite sexy job doing protection for foreign office in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, which I was really looking forward to. I've gone over to the, to the States and done a, a course um, with the State Department over over in uh, well, various places around the, around the United States, which I've passed. Um, but that wasn't going to happen now. So... Um, what I did is I stayed on in the unit for another three years. So I did a total of 33 years. I then got um, recruited by a company that sold police and military equipment. Uh, and I worked with them until about 2011 when they held a, an inquiry into the shooting. And the problem we had was that in the United States and, and most other parts of the world, if you tap a criminal's phone, you know, on a on an authorised phone tap, you know, it's been signed by a judge and everything else. Anything they say in that phone tap is admissible in a court of law. But oh no, <laughs> not in Great Britain. In England, we're far cleverer than that. <laughs> what we say is you can only use that, what they say, as intelligence. You can't actually, it's inadmissible in a court of law. So if they say they're going to go and do a robbery, you've then got to follow them and get information and get sufficient evidence to warrant their arrest. But anything that they said on that tape is inadmissible. So the problem is in the, in the UK, after a fatal shooting or any fatality or after any death in point of fact, um, unless it's signed off by a doctor, you know, there's no old age or something like that, there should be a coroner's inquest uh, in front of a jury. And the coroner said, well, I can't put this in front of the jury because the statements are so heavily redacted. Uh, because 50% of my decision to fire was based on intelligence that a jury wasn't allowed to listen to. Does that make sense? It does. But but what? So even though the crown had had said you know that that there was no fault, how had it got to you know years and years later back in a courtroom? Well, because the, right, because there still has to be even the, even if the crown prosecution service say that there's no case to answer, there still has to be an inquest. But because the coroner had said can't have an inquest. They basically had to change the law and they introduced an act. I can't remember what it was called, but basically what it did is it allowed a judge sitting on his own, a high court judge, not any judge, a high court judge who was in law entitled to listen to the product of that, um, of that uh, illicit, well, not illicit, but of that uh, recording, of that covert recording, because he could listen to it. He would then know what my intelligence was and what I was acting on, and together with my spoken word, um, he would be able to make a decision as to whether or not I acted lawfully or not, right? So they set up this public inquiry, and two years after they set it up, they finally got round to listening to our evidence, by which time this judge, who was a liberal 73-year-old retired High Court judge that had predominantly dealt throughout his career with civil cases rather than criminal cases, decided that I should somehow have known 
that the weapon in the back of the vehicle was unloaded, um, that um, I should somehow have known the effects of my rounds. I shot him a total of eight times. And the reason I shot him eight times is because I could see no effect from my rounds. You know, the, 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 you know, there's plenty of foot, video footage available on the internet that shows you people have been hit multiple times and show no apparent effect until finally one round, you know, severs the central nervous system or they bleed out. But had had El Rodney been standing on the pavement when I shot him, I'd have probably fired two or three rounds and then I'd have, I'd have probably started to see him fall. Um, uh, and then I'd have stopped firing, you know. Uh, but as El Rodney was sitting in the back of a car and he was strapped in with a seatbelt. So when I shot him, he didn't immediately fall. He just slowly slumped towards me. And because I didn't pick up on that movement, I continued to fire until eventually I saw him slump below the level of the window. But, you know, in the words of the judge, I had continued to shoot a dying, I, I, I shot a dying man in the back. Yeah, unreal. His opening, the opening paragraph of his report at the end of the public inquiry started with the words, it's the job of the police service in the United Kingdom to protect the public, not kill them. I kind of knew at that point I was fucked. That doesn't bode well. Honest. It didn't bode well. No. <laughs> so what then happened is because a judge, a high court judge who'd, who'd had a public inquiry for two years had decided that he thought I'd acted unlawfully, the paperwork all went back to the Crown Prosecution Service, who took yet another year to look at it. And at this point, they decided they were going to give a prosecution a run. So I was charged with murder. Um, and then eventually, uh, a, well, how long after it was a decade, literally, it was. So I shot, my, my shots were fired in uh, what, 2005. And in 2015, um, I faced a trial by jury. Um, at the Central Criminal Court, the Old Bailey, which is the highest criminal court in the land. Um, they, they set aside six weeks. The trial actually took four weeks, uh, and I was found not guilty. Um, and, uh, and here I am. Um, so, I mean, to my, my point of view is uh, I just personally think that the Crown Prosecution Service, um, you know, if, if you know your Bible, uh, just did a bit of a Pontius Pilate, really. You know, they were like, well, we looked at this for a year back in 2005, 2006, and we put it in front of some of the most experienced barristers in the land. And they said that they didn't think there was a case to answer. But now we've got this 73-year-old required, you know, uh, retired idiot who thinks that he should have. So we're going to get criticised if we don't prosecute him. So you know what? Let, 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 the, let the 12, you know, butchers, bakers, candlesticks, makers and plumbers let them make a decision about whether or not he was guilty or not. Um, and, and thankfully, the common sense of the British public uh, saw me through. So, yeah, so I've, I've been pretty anti-jury service. So after 33 years as a cop, you become quite cynical about juries and, and the justice system. And when I first heard that it was a judge that was going to be on his own, that was going to be listening to my case, I was quite relieved. To be honest, I thought, well, he'll, the judge will get it. You know, an intelligent man, he'll get it. Um, but sadly, he didn't get it at all. Now, well, it's it's such an interesting theme that's that's come up a lot recently in the fire service too. So I I got a friend, Danny, who um, I think it's about a year ago now, went in, pulled a woman out of a 
a structure fire. Like, yeah, his his crew was still kind of getting off the rig, getting their masks on and everything. He saw an opportunity. It was about to, you know, to go up. He reached in, went a few feet, grabbed her, pulled her out. Um, and, you know, sadly she didn't make it, but he made the attempt and tried to try to save her. And he was basically written up by his department. And he ended up leaving that department and joining a different one who welcomed him with open arms. But again, you have someone who does exactly what they're supposed to do, you know, goes, stays within the parameters apart from, you know, in an ideal world, just like we talked about, there's no such thing as an ideal world in many of these situations. But you have to improvise a little bit. You have to adapt and overcome. That's exactly what he did. You know, I see this over and over and over again. And with you, it reminds me of uh, a video I saw recently of one of my other guests that posted of an assassination. And this this guy walks up to a car. He's got his hands in his pockets and he's got a pistol in his hand inside his pocket. And he just raises his hand up slightly, shoots this guy. Now, had that officer seen that behavior and, and thought someone had a gun and not shot that person that that victim still died you know so just because you didn't actually physically see a gun doesn't mean there isn't one trained on you we we had uh, an incident back in the 80s where uh, hell's angel had done a robbery on a post office Uh, and when he made his getaway he threw the bag with the money um, over a fence into a little wooded area um, clearly with the view to going back and collecting it later but a witness saw it and told the police. And so Essex Firearms Unit, which, you, as you know, is a uh, is the county to the east of London. Um, Essex Firearms Unit staked it out, and some of the guys hid in the woods uh, with a view of this this, pla- this plastic carrier bag. And sure enough, this Hell's Angel turns up uh, and picks the bag up, and he's challenged with a shout, shouts of armed police. And a sergeant left his cover um, and came out in the open to challenge the suspect. And the suspect just raised the bag and fired through the bag uh, and killed the sergeant outright. And uh, one of the other officers engaged the suspect and paralyzed him. Um, But the point I'm making is that that sergeant, that constable, were never going to see a gun. No, yeah, exactly. they're never going to see a gun because the guy was the guy chose to fire it through the plastic bag. You know, if you wait until you see a gun, it's going to be too late in many many instances. And sometimes you have to rely on instinct. And, and unfortunately, there are people, most of whom have never been in harm's way, um, who, you know, some of them become firearms instructors, who you know will rip a new arsehole into some student because he makes a decision, bearing in mind that, that the instructor knows what the outcome was going to be because he wrote the script. Yeah. So he's, he's given a scenario to which he knows the solution he wants. And when a student deals with it efficiently, but, but with a different outcome, he gets torn up because well, he didn't do what he was supposed to do. No, he didn't do what you thought he was going to do in an ideal world. But he saw an opportunity. But yeah, but he didn't see a gun. He was supposed to wait until he saw the gun before he fired. Yeah, well, you know, sometimes that doesn't happen. And sometimes that's never going to happen, you know. And I think there's, there's too much of this. And, and I see it an awful lot now. Um, you know, there's, a, there's an expression, I don't know whether you use it in the, in the fire department, but we call it training scars, where it's something that you do in training. Well, because it's training. 
Um, and uh, But unfortunately, it's ingrained into you so much in training that you do it instinctively um, in real life. Um, so we have, a, we have a thing whereby in, in one tactic, it's in one tactic alone, really, where you are rapidly clearing a building like a hostage rescue, if you fire your primary weapon and you get a malfunction, you need to get out of the way. So you drop to the kneeling, and as you're dropping to the kneeling, you're drawing your pistol, ready to engage with your pistol because you, you've got a malfunction on your primary weapon, at which point one of your colleagues, because you've knelt, has then got a clear shot over, the, over your head at the suspect as well. Yeah. Right. So what we do is you, you shout stoppage, which is a quaint English way of saying, you know, my gun's jammed. <laughs> and, you drop, and you drop to the kneeling position. That's fine. Okay, that's great. That works great in that in team environment where you're moving rapidly through a confined area. I can guarantee you I will set up a simunition shoot-no-shoot scenario where it's a vehicle stop in an open street where there's cover to be had from parked vehicles and all the rest of it. And I can guarantee I can set up a scenario where the police officer draws his gun, fires, has a malfunction, and simply drops down in the mid to his knee automatically in the middle of the street and shouts stoppage, even though there's substantial cover two feet away to his right. Because, you know, we have created this training scar where on the range, every time he fires his gun and it runs out, he shouts stoppage and drops to the kneeling. Even, you know, because on a range, you can't have everyone running into cover because there's six people on the firing point or 12 people on the firing point. So we do it well, for the best intention. We do it, oh, yeah, we'll simulate going to cover, just drop to the knee and shout stoppage. And you go, well, do you always want to shout stoppage? What if you've been in a foot chase with a suspect and it's just you and him? And now you're in a dark alleyway somewhere and you fire your gun, but then you have a malfunction. Do you really want to tell the bloke? <laughs> the bad guy who might not have a malfunction, do you really want to tell him that you, your gun's empty? <laughs> you know, why would you, shout, why would you shout that out if you're on your own? But people do because we've trained someone often enough to, to make something instinctive, which isn't necessarily a good thing. And if in training you convince people that they've got to see a gun, then that could result in, you know, police officers or members of the public killed because the police officer didn't act on what was a perfectly correct instinct simply because he was waiting to see a gun. Yeah. Well, it reminds me of, I had uh, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on, and he told the story of one American officer that was killed picking up his brass because they did it in the range well, uh, the same way every time. Well, well funnily, funnily enough, I chose to tell you the, 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 the simulation scenario, um, but actually that would have been my go-to one. There was a very famous shooting um, in the 1970s in uh, California, and that's probably what Grossman was talking about. Uh, and what it was is um, on the range back in the 70s, certain police departments were more interested in range procedures and keeping the range tidy than they were... Um, you know, actually teaching proper tactics. And quite often they'd put like a, a coffee tin down in front of each firing point and, and the, the officers would be encouraged to catch their empty brass out of their revolvers and drop them in the tin to keep range tidy. Um, and an officer was found dead, shot to death with an empty revolver in his hand and a handful of, of uh, empty cases because that's what he'd been trained to do. 
know, you've got to make your training realistic, but either, you've got to be really, really careful because I've, I've, I've been guilty of this myself. You know, I've, I've, I've introduced something to try and make something more realistic. Um, but if you're not careful, you introduce it for one shoot and the next time the shoot's written by someone else and they go, well, let's do what Tony did in that last shoot and have him do this. And next thing you know, it's become, well, we've always done it that way. And actually, you just, you've just you introduced something which, as a one-off idea, isn't a bad thing at all. But as, a, as an SOP, as a standard operating procedure, is, is potentially lethal. Yeah, no, exactly. So with that, so you did, you know, again, everything you were trained to do. I mean, yes, you've had three shootings, but they're over a span of, you know, 30 years. Um, what was that like for you? Because when we talked, if, you know, a couple of months ago, but when we were talking about setting this up, you mentioned how, and I can see this completely happening here as well. Everyone was covering, you know, cop charge of murder. But once the verdict came in, there wasn't the same aggression of news coverage showing that you'd been vindicated. No, no, absolutely. Had I been found guilty, it'd probably been a sense page spread and all of my past incidents would have come out and I would have been painted as this, you know, crazy killer cop. Um, you know, there's, a, there's another bit in the book that you, you, you will have read that we haven't mentioned where um, the woman in charge of the Met Police Professional Standards Bureau, um, you know, what, probably be called in the States the Internal Affairs, uh, when I introduced myself to her to find out what was happening with my case because I was waiting to retire, I said, oh, that Tony, the Met's very own serial killer. You know, and, and, uh, and that, became, that became public knowledge and was in the press before my court case. So you can imagine, you know, it, what would have happened, you know, had I been found guilty. Um, but the press are very, very lazy. We all know that, you know, and, and, and if, you know, I'd... I'd I'm certainly not a Trump supporter. I'm not I'm certainly not a, 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 a liberal, you know, screaming anti-Trump Trump guy. Um, but I think if, if there's one thing that Trump brought out into the open, which is a good thing, is this whole fake news. You know, I mean, he was probably as guilty of, of fake news as much as anyone else. <laughs> that was you know, the that's irony. What, that's, what poli- <laughs> that's what politicians do. But I can honestly say, and this is me saying, I've got no axe to grind. I'm not a politician. But after 33 years in the police service, I have never once been involved in a newsworthy incident. I'm not just talking about shootings, but anything, you know, which I've been actively been involved in, where I've read about it in the newspaper the following day and go, wow, they've got that absolutely right. Not only have they not got it right, they've just made shit up. Every time police go into a building to arrest someone, police storm building. Well, we didn't storm the building. We knocked on the door. We asked the occupants to come out. And then it took it a good 45 minutes to clear the building slowly and methodically. We didn't storm anything. But it doesn't sound as good as storming, you know. And um, uh, uh, some of the stuff that's been written, been written about me, I mean, I've, I've had my name changed um, to all sorts of bizarre stuff. You know, at one point... Um, Someone wrote an article about me. We got wind of it, and my lawyers got got involved and said, "You can't." He's actually been given anonymity. This was this was while we, you know, this was between um, shoot while well, I was still serving, but after the Zoe Rodney shooting, um, and I was given anonymity. My code code name was Echo Seven, um, but they somehow got wind of it and managed to identify me with two previous shootings, and they were going to call me by my name, and it got pointed out that they would be prosecuted. I said, oh, well, we've heard he's called the Met's own serial killer. So my lawyers went, 
one woman called him that and she was successfully sued if you want to be sued go ahead and call him that but that that was just it's not even his nickname it's never been his nickname it was just something that one person said once and was taken to task over it okay well is it all right if we call him tony then so my lawyers rang me up so look they want to they're not going away i said well, let them call me tony then that's it forget it da, 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 you know next day i opened the newspaper and it read um the officer in the dark humor of his colleagues from the elite firearms unit is known as dirty tony Dirty Tony. It's like they'd obviously gone, they were sat there and they, they put the phone down to the lawyer and they're going, right, right, hold it. We can't call him the Metzone serial killer. Come on, someone think of a nickname. Someone think of a nickname. How about Dirty Harry? Well, his name's Tony, you idiot. How about we call him Dirty Tony? That's it. Right, genius. You can, <laughs> you're genius. You can see the way their minds operate. And, and, and you go, but it's the press that will hold a politician or a police officer or some other, you know, or a, a, a celebrity. They're the ones that will hold them to task if they lie or if they do something that's inappropriate or wrong. The press, because it's the freedom of the press, you can't criticise the press. And yet they every single day, I mean, if you speak to them, if you get a press person on their own, they will joke about the lies that they've written. You know, particularly, particularly if they're of a certain era. You know, if they were a, if they were a, a hack, you know, writing for a, for a British red top newspaper in the 70s, they will have had little competitions as to who could make up the most outrageous bollocks and print it. You know, that's in the same way that, you know, 1970s cops, you know, used to, you know, pull pranks and, you know, joke about stuff that to other people would be otherwise serious. And yet we have to take the press totally seriously. You know, we have to, you know, we, we have to respect their freedom to write whatever they want. And like I said, you know, I'm sure there are decent, honourable journalists out there. I just ain't ever met one. I've just never met one that can actually write an article about something and not go off script and try and make it sound juicier. It's just in their, it's just in their genes. Yeah, well, that's something that you know. You got me on my favourite. You got me on my favourite subject. <laughs> well, to add to that, I mean, you know, coming from, you know, growing up from, you know, being born in the seventies, so you had John Craven's News Round and BBC. You know, so it's pretty adult focused you know sensible let's teach you about the world let's band together and raise money for these different countries and these people that are struggling i thought it was a pretty damn good you know introduction to television and then i've always been a big fan of the bbc i don't haven't lived in the uk for a long time but compared to what the bullshit that i see on the television here i still think it's very kind of just you know overall just reporting this this is what happened uh, kind, well, yeah, kind of, but I think we've all been tainted by it. Uh, i tell you what I think it is. It's put the political commentary. So once upon a time, the news would say there was a, a debate in the House of uh, Commons today, and uh, this, was, this was what was said. And I'll show you a little clip of it. Now you've got to have a political commentator that comes on and gives their slant. And I think if you'd have, if you'd have been in the UK throughout Brexit, um, you know, there was absolutely a liberal slant a liberal anti-Brexit slant um, because, they're, because they're all part of the sort of liberal elite, aren't they? You know, journalists, they kind of are. Um, and certainly if you were to look at, if you were look at the coverage of the troubles um, uh, in street troubles, uh, BLM sort of post George Floyd in the States, the way in which it was reported in the UK, 
it didn't correspond at all to a lot of the a lot of the footage and a lot of the reporting that you could find um you know by other means on social media it was very you know the police are the, the police are the protagonists the, you know the this police murder when no one's yet been convicted of murder you know um it, it was it, it pretty biased i think personally but i think to be honest they're all pretty much of a muchness now and i just think a lot of it's down to the fact that there's just way too much comment from you know our, our, let's talk now to our political correspondent well, what makes him a political correspondent or her a political correspondent where's her expertise you know where, yeah. did, where did why why am i listening to her opinion on it and, and not somebody with a different perspective i just think it's all become yeah i mean I'm pretty cynical anyway, like I said, you know, 33 years as a cop, never having read um, an accurate piece about something I actually factually know about um, is, is left me quite tainted, Bernie. But, you know, I think it's got worse in recent times on, on television because we've gone away from just telling the news as it is. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. And, you know, you see here, you know, we have the polarizing political news channels, which in itself is complete bullshit. You know, you should just be reporting. Yeah. But then, I mean, yeah. we'll get to the point here where, you know, say there's a shooting on a street, they'll interview a dude that's walking by four hours later. Oh, what do you think? Who gives a shit what he thinks? He wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And then well, they'll. Here's well, here's one. Here's one for you. Just shortly after George Floyd, when uh, BLM. Um, was at its peak in terms of, you know, everybody was taking an E and everybody was like, you know, feeling bad about themselves and, and throwing historical things into the water. Um, the Lo BBC London News um, gave a microphone and a film crew to a very attractive young black lass uh, with an afro and a combat jacket with badges, CND badges and BLM badges all over it and gave her the whole of the 15 minutes of news just to go out with a microphone and interview people in, in Hyde Park. And everyone in Hyde Park was there um, because they were pro-BLM and uh, were, were there to protest. So that isn't news, is it? That's a party political broadcast on behalf of BLM. You don't give a microphone to a Labour supporter and then send them to the Labour Party conference to interview Labour Party people about Labour Party politics because you're going to get a Labour Party slant, you know. It's just it, it, people just completely lost their their balance and their and their sense of objectivity throughout the whole thing. And I think, you know, I get it. You know, passion does that. People get passionate about things and they see a little bit of something and they think they've seen it all and they know exactly what went on and they don't because they weren't there. Um, and uh, they get on their high horse and, you know, it's just the way of the world, I'm afraid, you know. People don't go to war because they're calm and resolute, do they? No. Well, and it's even with the, with the COVID thing, like number of people I've had from like my family back home, you know, oh my God, I heard what's happening in Florida, you know, I heard COVID's, and I'm like, no, no, <laughs> it's not. We're doing really well in Florida. Of course, some people are dying and that's awful. But overall, our numbers are very, very manageable. None of the hospitals that I'm aware of are overrun. None of my responder friends are running their ass off. The, you know, the waiting in the hallways for a bed is a normal thing in an inner city emergency room in America. So, you know, there's well, so there, much there a, like misinformation. A, there, there was a one off article on knife crime um, on the BBC 
some time ago. I mean, it's, knife crime's peaking again right now as we speak, but this was a couple of years back. Um, and they filmed uh, in a casualty department in the major, the, the London hospital, which is where the air ambulance goes to, and it's where all the major trauma, gunshot, and knife wounds will go, you know, if, if it's life-threatening. And, um, you know, they, they, they filmed the floor, and there was blood on the floor, and there was bandages, and, you know, the, the debris that you would get, you know, after, you know, frantically trying to save someone's life. And uh, Trump got up and said, you know, that uh, I, I think the doctor had said something slightly melodramatic, like, you know, sometimes we're up to our, up to our ankles in blood in here, you know. And Trump picked up on it and, and basically wanted to have a go at the mayor of London and, and hats off to anyone that wants to have a go at the mayor of London because the bloke's an idiot. But, um, <laughs> it's not the yeah, first time I heard it. <laughs> yeah, but, but basically sort of made it out that, you know, London was just, you couldn't walk down the street without getting stabbed, you know, and that, uh, that it was a battle zone. And it's, you know, it isn't. You know, the reality is, is there's a, you know, a, a, a catchment area of, you know, within society, you know, where it's young people that are getting stabbed and they're getting stabbed by other young people and it's invariably gang or drug related. And if you're just an ordinary person walking down the street, the likelihood of you coming across it is almost zero. It's, it's, it's like the terrorist attacks, you know, everybody gets up in their air about a man that goes berserk and stabs three people. And yes, of course, it's tragic. But that very same day, probably 20 people died on our roads, you know, it is like it's it's life and death in the big sea, isn't it? You know, and, and and again, it's the press and the media generally that that paint the picture that we live our lives by. You know, absolutely. Well, as as you mentioned, you didn't didn't get the uh, you know the the front page headlines of your innocence verdict again. So tell me about writing the book, and then you know, was there a cathartic element to it as well after you know having all that? I didn't. I- I, I, I kind of thought there might be, but I didn't. I didn't really think there would be. Funny thing, I've been thinking about writing a book anyway. But it, you know, you can get books published yourself now, like a one-off book, can't you? And I'm I'm a cartoonist, um, and I spent the whole of my career, both in the firearms unit and before I joined the firearms unit, doing cartoons of just funny shit that happens at work. You know, uh, sometimes I do it for people's leaving dues. Sometimes something stupid would happen, and I just do a cartoon, and and I, I've kept the majority of them. And I thought, that would be quite good if I just wrote down all the stories about these cartoons. And then what I'll do is I'll get it, I'll get it bound. I think Apple Book, you can do an Apple Book, can't you? And they'll bind it for you and you can put the photographs in it and all the rest of it. And I'll get like one done for each of my grandchildren, you know, and they can open it when they're 18, they're old enough because some of it's quite rude, you know. Um, <laughs> and, um, and that's kind of what I thought of doing. And I, so I'd actually started writing some of these stories down. Um, and then as, as it progressed, um, I, I met a guy, I think I'd already met him actually, a guy called Dave Matthews, who's a, a, um, a journalist, <laughs> but he's also an author in his own right. And um, we got chatting about it. And uh, I was pretty angry about a lot of the press coverage of the, of the public inquiry um, and there was an awful lot of stuff on social media uh, where I was being painted, certain, especially once my name was released, because once I got charged with murder, I lost, I lost my anonymity. Uh, and from that point on, although the press had to be very careful where they trod um, because of subjudice, uh, an awful lot of stuff was being written about me and, you know, uh, social media and the like. And um, 
I just thought, this is bollocks, you know, I'm getting painted as the bad guy here. And all I did was do my job, you know. And um, anyway, Dave had a, a friend who was um, a documentary maker and sold him on the concept of doing a documentary about armed policing and using me as the sort of central part of it. Not, not to be the presenter, but to kind of be a, because, uh, you know, uh, as you know from the stories I've just told you, they kind of defined the progress of the department from dealing with sieges to, you know, dealing with proactive jobs and surveillance and all the rest of it. Um, and I sat down and started to write some stuff. And then it turned into, well, I could introduce you to um, the publishers if you're interested in writing the book. So I went along just immediately after the trial. And I sat down uh, with somebody from Penguin Books, someone seen you from Penguin Books, and he said, you know, yeah, really like the idea. Um, and we, we were quite happy to talk to the documentary makers so that the two things can come out together. You know, that will help sell our book and the book will help, you know, the documentary. Um, and so he said to me, how long do you think it will take to write it? And I went, well, it's written. And he went, well, really? And I went, well, kind of, yeah. You know, I've got a few gaps that I need to fill in and bits and pieces. Um, and so I, I, I got given an advance and I sat down and I started to write it properly. And actually, probably a good 50% of what I'd written ended up on the, on the floor uh, because I used Dave as my, uh, Dave Matthews as my uh, uh, editor. And you know, he'd written books before, so he was saying, well, it's a great story, Tony, but it doesn't actually bring anything to the main thrust of it and you know you're interested in it your mates will be interested in it but joe public won't be and and so a lot of it was cut out and ended up on the floor but yeah i think i certainly went when the book came out and certainly the documentary as well um because more people watch telly than read books um but yeah I, I i it was a it was cathartic but b it it sort of cleansed me in a way um you know i sort of I, I rewrote my image, if you like, and I, all of a sudden I went from being um, someone that was, I, I kind of looked at, my, my son's in the military, um, and for a period of time um, he left and he went to work as a contractor, a private military contractor in Iraq. And um, he was talking to his mate and he said, oh, I should write a book. And he goes, that would be interested in you, mate. And he goes, why is that? He said, well, you're just a henchman, aren't you? He goes, what? He goes, well, we're all henchmen. That's what we are. <laughs> we're the bloke that you see in the movie that never gets anything to say. Just along <laughs> with a long leather, leather coat and an AK-47 and a pair of wraparound sunglasses and a bald head. That's what we are, you know. And, I, and so I think I was looked upon because the people knew I was involved in this shoot and he was involved in this shoot. He's a police psychic. They just looked upon me as some sort of dull henchman. And I think the fact that I wrote a book and people listened to me put a few words together People started to look upon me as a human being to start with, because a lot of people just see a uniform. Um, uh, and uh, and then, you know, kind of reinvented myself. Like I said, so, you know, it doesn't happen very often now, but, you know, occasionally something will happen. There'll be a terrorist attack and the BBC or someone will, you know, Sky or someone will think of calling me up and going, would you mind coming along and commenting on this? But, so it's nice now to be looked upon as somebody that's, you know, a professional in their own right, uh, and who has something that's something to say that people will want to listen to. Really, I suppose. 
Yeah. Well, what I love about what you did is kind of, you know, one of the reasons why I started this too is, you know, in the olden days when you write a book, well, you, you know, you're hoping that the publisher will pick it up or, you know, say you're, you know, some sort of profession where you're hoping one day you get on a TV show and you get to tell your story. Well, the other philosophy now in 2021 is that you say, well, fuck it, I'm just going to create my own avenue and I'll tell my story through through this channel. So rather than trying to get vindicated through the media, you just wrote your book and and put it well, out there. I think so. So, so put, I don't know whether there were podcasts in two, 2015. They probably were, but they were probably very much in their infancy. And it never really occurred to me to do that. But for, for me, as someone that was born in 1957, it was write a book. Do you know what I mean? I was I, I was quite surprised, you know, when, I, when all of a sudden, you know, I ended up on TV as well. Um, but certainly, I mean, you know, one of the reasons I went on Instagram was because I, I had a, a couple of mates that wrote books in the 90s. One of, One's ex-military and the other one's ex-SO19. And their books were phenomenal successes. And, you know, if the publisher took you on, you got a massive uh, advance. And like every bus uh, in London and every tube, you know, on tube stations and the bus stops and things, they were big full-length posters advertising your book. You know, you went to WH Smith's and there'd be a cardboard cutout of, of you and your, your assault rifle, you know, uh, with, with a ball of flame behind you. So, you know, buy this book, buy this book. But what's, ha- what's happened is that's changed completely. And there is no money uh, nowadays in writing books in the same way that there was, say, in the 90s. Because so much has moved on. You know, we've all got tablets, we've all got phones, we're all, we're all glued to, you know, social media. But no one's really interested in buying books in the way that they used to be. Um, and so consequently, the publishers go, well, get on Instagram, sell it yourself, mate. You know, we'll publish it, we'll print it, and we'll do all the distribution and everything, but we're not going to spend any money on advertising. You do it. Well, I don't, I don't have a clue about it. <laughs> my, my PR girl from the, from, um, the publishers uh, said, um, I'll support you in everything you do, but don't go on Twitter. Why is that then? I knew what Twitter was, but well, because you'll just end up drunk at three in the morning having a slangy match with someone, and next thing you know, everything that you've said will be all over the news. So I've avoided Twitter. I've never gone on Twitter ever. Um, but people were quite interested in the history from the books, you know, some of the photographs and stuff like that. So I've got an Instagram account, and uh, you know, it seems to be doing fairly well. I mean, you know. I'm not going to be an Instagram star at 64, and I don't want to be. But it, it's <laughs> nice that it's nice that you know there are. Don't get me wrong, there are people out there who hate police and who hate me. They never, they've never met me, but they just know that they would hate me. Um, and you know, big for what I've done, uh, you know, and and they will see anything that I say about my career as me boasting and you know taking advantage of the death of you know innocent people and you know all this sort of shit. And my attitude to that is, well, I didn't go out stabbing little girls. You know, I didn't go out to commit armed robbery. Um, you know, they'd still be alive if they had stayed at home and, you know, played with the kids um, and watched the telly. You know, that's their choice, not mine. Um, but people like that, you're never going to, you're never going to convince them otherwise. Um, and, you know, there's, there's actually no point even trying to. Um, but I think most people, Decent people, you know, we all we all prejudge, we all look at stuff. I did it myself, and I find myself having to go. Okay, you know, you don't know both sides of this story. You don't know what happened before that bit of video footage. 
wind your neck in, you know. Um, uh, and I think that there needs to be more of that. And of course, a lot of people who don't know. I mean, I think one of the things interesting, you talked about um, how much I was affected by seeing those um, dead bodies in that, in that first siege I dealt with. Um, I know police officers that did the whole of their service and probably saw 10 dead bodies. Uh, most people go through the whole of their life, may never see a dead body, and if they do, it'll just probably be their old granny lying in a coffin and give a little peck on her cold cheek before they put the lid on. Now, teenagers on their phones can watch in real time a murder that took place an hour ago. You know, there's a bit of footage that's going around at the moment of a, a fat, overweight um, police officer somewhere in the United States uh, being filmed from a from a car stuck in traffic, um, backing up about 20 yards while this much bigger guy is advancing on him with a stick in his hand. Uh, and the person in the car that's filming it is giving a commentary. And he's basically saying, shoot the motherfucker, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him, shoot him. And eventually this cop shoots this guy about eight times. And you can see there's almost like no effect at all. You know, and he, he wasn't missing. He was literally feet away. And eventually this guy just dies. He falls down on the floor. And the guy sitting in the car is filming the body on the floor as, it, as, as his life drains away. This is everyday occurrence now. You know, so, so I think it's people have just become hardened to it. You know, I really do. You know, people go on about how people, kids are affected by violent game shows, you know. Or, or video games, rather, you know, what people can see now on, on, on their own phone in the privacy of their own house is really quite scary, I think. Yeah, no, I agree completely. I actually, actually wrote a book myself and I talked about that in one of the chapters that we are in a society where people will work a nine hour grind, come home and just want to unwind with a movie about a bunch of teenagers being tortured and murdered. That should yeah. that should ring alarm bells to society that maybe maybe we've strayed a little from where we need to be. So yeah, I think that desensitization through video games, all those things, is a real issue. And it's all fun and games till it happens to you. Then it's not so fucking entertaining anymore, you know. But at that point, it's too yeah, late. Yeah, and, and also I think you know it's um, I think it, it's, it's the individuals that go out and do these things. They don't, they're not thinking. They're just in the moment, you know. All they know is that this kid from another gang or, you know, from another postcode has disrespected them or something. And they just go up and stab them to bits. And it's just the, you know, that, that one kid, who was probably a little shitbag anyway, but it's not, it's not the kid he's killed, is it? It's the mother. It's the siblings. It's the aunts, the uncles. It's all their friends. It's, you know, one death, you know, creates a, you know, huge ripple in the water doesn't it yeah no uh, and they don't they don't, they, they don't think of that they don't think how their own mother or their own sisters or their own friends would feel if it happened to them they just you know that's just it and that's the way you know i think that's the the part of the conversation that doesn't seem to get any airtime and I've had a lot of, yeah. you know, officers on here that have had to take a life obviously a lot of members of the military that have had to take a life is no one factors in the fact that that person has to deal with taking a life now. As you said, you you know, you you didn't want a, a four-year-old to be stabbed in the neck. You didn't want to be placed in these positions where you had no choice but to pull the trigger. 
but that's never the conversation in these shootings. It's always, oh, you know, obviously, as you said at the beginning, this officer woke up and said, oh, I want to kill a person that looks different to me today. No, you know, they were yeah. forced, they were backed into a corner and that was the result. And I talk a lot about, you know, the drugs, the illicit drugs epidemic and how the prohibition of drugs, in my opinion, has created such an environment for violence, for death, and creating a, such an unsafe environment, not only for our citizens, but for our law enforcement as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, Tony, we've been talking for almost four hours. So <laughs> I'm going to transition to some quick closing questions. Um, it has been amazing. And I think what I'm, I want to thank you so much because I've heard you in other conversations and I was always left wanting more. Even now, there's a thousand other things I could ask you about. But it's been great to just, you know, listen to, to your kind of journey unfold. Now, for everyone listening, the, your book is Lethal Force. So where can people find yeah. that? Probably Amazon is the best bet. Um, you know, it's still, over in the UK, you'll still see it uh, in the occasional bookshop. But, uh, I mean, it's been out now since, what, 2017. Um, so but you, can definitely, you can definitely get it on Amazon. Brilliant. All right. So the first of the closing questions, is there a book someone else has written that you love to recommend to people? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. I think one of the problems with me is I don't I don't really like um, uh, sort of fantasy is not the word fiction like novel fiction yeah I'm not a big you know fiction because it's like it, it, I just I've just never read one which is I, I used to love them when I was a kid before I knew the real world and then when you know the real world you think well, that wouldn't happen <laughs> yeah so. Uh, and I read a couple of books, and Chris won't mind me saying this, but I remember reading one book of Chris's, and I took it. I, I literally picked it up at the airport. I think I'd be one to read. I don't normally read fiction, but I'll give I'll give it a book a whirl. Um, and um, I ended up lobbing it down the beach. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it got to one bit, and I thought, "You were seriously telling me that you know the, the coincidence was just so great." I thought, "No, I'm not having that." <laughs> <laughs> so, so I'm, yeah, I'm not a big fiction. You know, I like I like reading historical stuff about. Uh, about people's lives um yeah i can't think of anything off the top of my head i'm sure there, there have been some i've read relatively recently no worries well you mentioned that the documentary was that ever released that accompanied the book yeah unfortunately i don't think it's up anymore it's called secrets of a police marksman and it was a channel four production um for uh for channel four um but um there's a, there's a couple out that if you're interested in the history of the department, my, my department, SO19, um, there's a couple of books by a guy who goes, I used to work with him on the teams, and his pen name is Steve Amis, and he's written a book called Stop Armed Police, um, and he's also written another book more recently called London's Armed Police, Up Close and Personal. And um, they're both sort of pictorial histories so it's really a sort of chronological history of the department, how it's developed, together with relevant photographs. Um, and um, yes, yeah, so that's 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 they're not bad books, but they're not they're not a they're, they're in a different vein to my book. But yeah, they're good. Brilliant, beautiful. All right, well then, the last question before we make sure everyone knows how to find you online: What do you do to decompress these days? Um, Gardening. I've become a really old man. I get, I get my, uh, my my stepdaughter takes the mickey out of me because my partner and I watch the birds feeding outside in the garden, and she thinks that's hilarious. 
Um, <laughs> is that I, a giggling I've got in the a mansion. <laughs> yeah, that's a giggling in the background. I've got a mansion down the bottom of the garden which I go and hide down, uh, which is, is my I Love Me room. So I've got all my all my old plaques and photographs and gizits and stuff from when I was uh, in the unit, uh, all down there together with a beer fridge uh, and, a, and a bookshelf with some books that I'm in the process of reading at the minute. Um, and a wine rack. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I like doing that. Um, just a bit of wood carving, believe it or not. That's sad as well, isn't it? Wood carving, whittling. <laughs> well, I think that's it though. The simplicity of just being yeah. present after the profession you were in. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I probably will write another book. I've, I've thought of calling it Lethal Farce. And making it more like the original concept of, of telling funny stories about incidents that happen using the cartoons. Um, but uh, the problem is, is that, you know, what what cops find funny, particularly cops of a certain era find funny, is, is the sort of humour that in this day and age um, would probably uh, have uh, snowflakes dashing for their safe space. And people might not think it was appropriate you know, police officers having, you know, doing stupid things on night duty to each other, you know. But uh, I don't know. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Yeah, brilliant. No, I can totally relate. That's that's the problem is, you know, we're in an echo chamber. We all get it. But, uh, you know, like you said, from the outside looking yeah, in, exactly. it offends and triggers people. Um, I, right. I had a, I had, when, I, when I was writing the book, I had a bit of an issue with that. It was like um, I wanted to say, to say something and I wanted to be brutally honest you know, about something, about how things were, what attitudes were like in the 70s, you know, in a, in a predominantly white police force, for instance. Um, and um, I um, I kind of bottled it because I thought, you know what, people just aren't going to get it. You know, in, under, the, under the microscope of modern day life, people are not going to understand how people were different in those days because their expectations and their experiences were different. You know? Yeah. Well, I think it's important. I mean, like how you relayed, you know, the the immigration and then how, you know, certain groups were least able to gain employment. You know, I mean, that, that's the thing. It's it not, like, it's, when, I, when, I, when, I, when I wrote the original, um, the original book um, that came out as a hardback, the, the opening line of the chapter about the Brixton riots um, says something like, try having a riot with, with one shoe. Those are the opening lines. Yep. But I put a couple, a couple of expletives in there, and they were racist expletives. It was driving a riot without a shoe, you, the dum de dum de dum um, And I can't remember what, what, whether those were the actual words that were said, but, but if they weren't, it was probably something very similar because my unit had been petrol-bombed and had bricks thrown at them all the previous evening. And like half the unit were off sick and we were angry. And I can absolutely imagine that that's what would have been said. I can't recall exactly, but if you had to, you know, you get to close your eyes and say, imagine what, what would have been said. That's what would have been said. But I bottled it at the, at the 11th hour and, and I changed it to, to what you actually read, which is driving a right with, a, with one shoe, but without the expletives. And then... About six months ago, someone drew my attention to someone who was doing a, a, an article about my book on Twitter. 
and they said it's not very it's not very um it, it's pretty anti-police and it's pretty anti-you so i checked this person out on twitter like i said i don't do twitter myself but i checked it out and it had the original try having a riot with one shoe you racist exclusive right and i went oh i don't know if she got that and she was showing clips of it and there it was written down and it turned out that my publishers had printed hard copy my final edited version but somehow some clerk somewhere had allowed the not fully edited version to go on kindle oh so anyone that bought it so anyone that bought it electronically now i don't know what else was said because i haven't got kindle but i wouldn't mind betting because i found quite a few faults in the first print that we managed to change and correct in the second print um so i was mortified absolutely mortified as it was everyone that read the kindle version no one criticized it at all but it was just something it was just words that i thought in 2000 and you know 16 just wouldn't be wouldn't people would read it and not understand the context in which it was said yeah yeah no exactly and i think that's it i mean you're you're replacing it in that time the same it'd be no different than someone calling you a bunch of fucking pigs you know i mean it was yeah, it was exactly. it was two sides of a war at that point and it doesn't make it yeah, right it no absolutely absolutely and part of me was kind of angry with myself because i sort of not you know i, I bottled it and pulled away you know instead of going well that's what would have been said so I'm like, let's be honest you know boom. but hey you know yeah but I mean, like, like, like your editor told you about bringing value to the story. I mean, I think, you know, the writing it, how it exactly would have been said versus the potential of being received the wrong way. I mean, I, I'd say you probably made a good choice, to be honest, because, you know, yeah, you know the, the, the potential for someone to run with it was, uh, you know, mis misinterpret it rather than it just being a historical, you know, recount. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't think, I think yeah. it really takes away from the value of the book anyway. So, well, yeah, it has absolutely. been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much. Um, so for people that do want to find more about you, find you online, where are the best places to go? Um, I am on Instagram. And I've got to think what I am now. I am X, X1XT or XXIXT. There's a story behind that. And that's because uh, when I first went on it, I didn't have a clue what it was all about. And I put my real name down and I commented on someone else's post and someone came back to me going, Oh, are you the real Tony Long? And uh, I bottled it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I thought I'll put something, I'll put, I'll put something obscure down as my sort of tag. So I put XX1XT all in, all in uh, sort of uppercase. Um, and that just means X as in used to be in it. 19 x1x and t for tony so that's when i'm on that as on facebook i'm just I, I only do friends on facebook or or old police sites and stuff like that so really instagram is my is my only my only sort of avenue beautiful well half the hip-hop world is called xx1xt these days so <laughs> they probably think you're a rapper <laughs> <laughs> 
it's quite funny actually when people read it they go oh it wasn't what i was expecting <laughs> <laughs> the trouble is i've got i've got a reasonable amount of followers now so i don't want to change it because <laughs> No, it's perfect. All right. Well, Tony, I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for, you know, the educational element as far as some of the history. I'd never heard of it before. And, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening that hadn't as well, um, you know, leading us through your journey. And, you know, just being, I say this a lot, being courageous and transparent because it's this kind of honesty, this kind of storytelling that I know, I, I see the comments, it truly resonates with people. It truly makes a difference. But I also understand the toll of, you know, of, of telling some of these stories. I mean, they weren't positive Disney-fied scenes that you were in. So thank you so much for taking so much time and, you know, giving us such an incredible conversation and, uh, you know, being so courageous with your storytelling. Okay, no worries. Good talking to you, mate. You take care.